Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with Christopher Warnock about the Picatrix, which is a 10th century grimoire of astrological magic. Uh, hey, thanks for, for joining me today. Hey, it's great to be here, Chris. Yeah, this is funny because you actually are one of my earliest guests that appeared. This is your second appearance on the podcast, but it was so long ago. It was, was way back in episode 16, which we recorded and released uh, back in like, I don't even know, like 2013 or 2014 or something crazy like that. Wow. Well, so, I, I have to say it's a it's a great honor to be here. I mean, this is the the premier astrology podcast, no no question about it. And um, plus, you know, it, you're way up there. I mean, I look at your um, the I mean, Hellenistic astrology. You're the guy. So it's like, it's no yeah, question. you wrote a, a lovely review of my book when it came out a few years ago. So thanks for that. Um, but it's an honor to talk to you today because I've been wanting to do a full episode on the Picatrix for a while, and I felt like it was finally time. Uh, I did an interesting discussion with Austin about astrology and magic last month, um, so I'm ready to like delve into this topic. And I finally, I'd read and like skimmed through parts of the Picatrix before, but I finally now sat down and done a detailed read through of the entire thing. So I'm excited to talk about it. And I thought, who better to talk about it than you, who's been one of the primary proponents of sort of reviving that work and putting some of the precepts in it into practice over the course of the past couple of decades. Yeah, you know, it's interesting it's like cuz I think one of the things I really enjoy about being an astrologer is that you have to have this theoretical knowledge, but then at the same time you got to put it to practice and they sort of they they definitely inform each other. You know what I mean? It's like mm -hmm. we're not just having a theoretical academic discussion here as useful as that is. And also not just doing practical stuff. We have to do both, you know. So to be a scholarly practitioner, I mean, that's kind of my highest goal. And I think if you don't have the, that union of those two of theory and practice, you're really not getting it. Yeah, that's one of the things that's unique about the traditional revival is it's sort of reading a lot of these old texts requires having a, a scholarly bent on some level and the ability to work with historical sources and like put things in context and understand ancient philosophy and mathematics and other th other things like that but then obviously also there's a very practical hands-on element to it as well in terms of does this work and and what's effective versus what's not yeah i think that's true and that's you know it's funny because in my alternate career as an attorney it's really very much the same thing because i have to be knowledgeable about the sources about the law but then i've got a case in front of me i have to deal with so mm -hmm. people say to me it's like those are such different things i'm like to me they're very similar you know they have this you know, practicals. I really want to be practical. I love practical stuff. At the same time, I've always loved knowledge and learning and things like that. So I had an opportunity when I was in, I went to the University of St. Andrews, which is in Scotland. And afterwards, I could either go to Cambridge to study history or to law school and I ended up going to law school. And I'm, I'm glad I made that choice because I think that had I stuck with a purely academic study, I would have been frustrated just because of my own personality. So mm. But you know that's part of the thing you're talking about sources. I mean, I have a I have a master's in history, and so the historical methodology, which really does deal with different sources. I mean, you don't a textbook is not history, right? Sure. If you're reading a textbook, you're not reading history because mm -hmm. you have to. I remember I had a, a my teacher in a high school, a history teacher, I had AP history, and she said, "Okay, here's three different sources. Think about where each of these sources came from and what their biases and what their views are, and they need to synthesize those." 
And mm. so that's really what we end up doing as we look at these traditional sources. And, um, you know, th there's basically two, a couple different approaches. The first approach is to just ignore the sources altogether and just kind of flail around and do your own thing. The next step, when people get into the sources, they treat it like, oh my God, I've got to follow each bit of it specifically slavishly, right? right. Which you need to do as a student. I mean, you need to kind of closely follow the sources. But there comes a point where you penetrate through the source to the essence of it, and then you're able to do it yourself. You know, it's a bit like learning music. If you had a blues teacher and all you did was, if you don't learn how to follow them in the beginning, you know, you're lost. But if all you do your entire career is copy them lick for lick, you're not going to ever be a master on your own. So right. it's that, that's really the level of, there's not a lot of people at that level, but once you become a master, then you start doing your own stuff. You know, sure. like John Frawley. John Frawley is a really excellent example, say, in horary. He has his own idiosyncratic techniques that he uses. I don't follow them, but I don't, I don't look at him and say, oh, that's wrong, right? He's just developed his own sort of, yet he's in the tradition. So yeah. that's that, that kind of um, dance we're always doing is we don't want to be doing too much variation to go outside the tradition. At the same time, we don't want to just be monolithically trying to do the same thing over and over again. Sure. So as, as a beginning sort of. All right. So let's jump into our actual topic today, which is the Picatrix. And this was a book that was written probably in the 10th century. And um, this is a text that hasn't been around or hasn't been in wide circulation in modern times, but has had a bit of a revival recently over the course of the past uh, decade or two. And you've been a person who's partially been involved in that, right? Yeah. I mean, when I first um, encountered Picatrix, it was with my teacher, uh, Robert Zoller. And it's interesting, I, he sort of, you know, he didn't teach me astrology so much as we basically spent about a year and we, he taught me sort of the theory or the, the basis for it. And he had, his Latin was good, so he could translate it. And I'm like, I said to him, I said, oh, do you have a translation of Picatrix? He said, no, you know, don't worry about that. So I spent about 12 years trying to find somebody to translate it with. And finally, John Greer was stepped up and was willing to do that. And we used um, Pingree's uh, Latin critical edition. So what Pingree, who's a scholar, did was to look at every single manuscript he could find, go through line by line, and then come up with his best view as to what the appropriate you know, Latin was for the, right. in the critical edition. So let's set the tone, though, before you even got to that point. It was just this legendary text that everybody knew about and everybody knew was very influential on the later like medieval and renaissance magical tradition uh, astrological magical traditions but it was something and it was incorporated into other works like like agrippa but nobody had actually read because it hadn't been translated into modern languages yet yeah on their hand you know like i said if you look at if you look at Ficino, there's there's big chunks of it in there if you okay. look at agrippa there's big chunks of it in there I mean, a lot of the recipes had already partially sort of been translated. And so, and also it's made of pieces of other manuscripts too. The, the author, who's also referred to as Picatrix, says he, refer, he used over 240 other books that he referred to. And you can see as you go through that, he'll mention, oh, this book or that book, the Libra Antimaquis, you know, Aristotle this or Plato that. So it, it is a compilation. So the, it's, if once, it, once it was translated, it wasn't really a shock. It wasn't really that, oh my God, there's new stuff in here, but having the whole book available was does really make a difference. But, sure. So parts of it had been incorporated into so many later sources and it was so influential that 
Um, it wasn't that it was completely new, but it had never been seen in its entirety from like start to finish in a modern language. Mm-hmm, that's correct. I mean, it and it really had been the the predominant influence and source for astrological magic in the mid- Middle Ages and Renaissance. I mean, this is what, as I said, Ficino used. This is what Agrippa used. This is what Lily used. Everybody used this as their key source for astrological magic. Okay. Um, so let's talk about the text was written, we think, in the 10th century, and the original title was the, uh, do you know the pronunciation? It's the Gayat al-Hakim. One of the problems of being an autodidact, of being self-educated, is I never right. hear anyone say anything. I just read it. So, yeah. And also, I have a heavy Midwestern accent, so sure. I tend to be Gayat al-Hakim. That's, okay. I guess that's how I, I like would that. say it. That's, that sounds better to my ear than, than my mangled pronunciation, so we'll go with that. And that translates the Arabic title has uh, been translated either as the goal of the wise or the aim of the sage as the original title mm-hmm. of the text. But mm-hmm. then the Latin translation or for the Latin version of it has just universally been referred to as the Picatrix. Right. You know, and that's the there's the whole process, and, and Pingree has an interesting article about it of the translation from Arabic into Spanish. And there's a whole variety of you know, typographical errors and, and minor changes and things like that. And, and again, if you're an academic, you're going to spend a lot of time worrying about that. The 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 main body of it, though, the recipes and then the the main philosophical you know portions of it are are translated fairly intact. Though, I mean, you can you can get a it's it's different, but it's not like a completely different you know uh, book or anything like that. I mean, it's 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 a it's a descendant of it, so to speak. Um, sure. So let's talk a little bit about like the history behind the text then. So in terms of dating, it was probably written in the 10th century. Uh, It seems like the latest authors that it cites or or uses are 9th century astrologers like Abu Mashar, uh, who lived around the middle of like the 9th century. And recently it seems like um, at least the academic scholars have sort of agreed on a specific person as the probable author of the text. How do you feel about that attribution? Is that something you're on board with, or are you ambivalent, or I think you at that with it? you know it's extremely important to understand the the context and the background that we're working mm-hmm. with of these sources. You know where it came from and the time period. It, it's it's useful to know that, but I'm less concerned about specifically who did it because I'm not. You know what I'm saying? I'm interested in the material. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm interested in the information it contains. And um, one of the debates that they'll have is, for example, the centralocium. I don't know, again, know how to pronounce it. Mm-hmm. It the 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 academics have basically looked at that and said, you know what, this is a this is an also a 10th century text. It's written in Arabic. It wasn't written by Ptolemy, right? You know, and but and for them that means it's worthless. You know, if if the if we don't have the authorship nailed down, then it's useless. But I look at it myself and I say, look, this is an authentic 10th century text. Has lots of useful information from an astrological standpoint. So the mm-hmm. the fact that the attribution may not be how we would you know a modern historian would do it doesn't bother me so much. So I I think that I ex- definitely accept the 10th century. Um, as far as the specific, there's the, the academics love to debate about things. That's how they get their you know they can write an article about it, they can write a PhD dissertation about it, and then they can get the prestige in their community from the arguments. But I'm less again I'm an attorney and I like to know what can be proven. And in this case I'd say it's I certainly accept that as a, a pretty probable hypothesis, but I'm less worried about the details of, you know, who the author was. Um it clearly is not fictitious. It wasn't invented like, you know, Necronomicon or something. 
Um, mm-hmm. It is it is authentic. It was it was written in the 10th century. It was widely used in Europe. So that for me is is sufficient. And then I'll look at the contents. You know, that's what I look at in terms of what's important to me. Is 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 this a is it is it usable as a as a magical text as an astrological text? But I do I think yeah I I would say the short answer is I think that's correct. I think it's 10th century Arabic, and appears okay. to be in, in Andalusia. I think that's correct in more yeah, Spain. Yeah. So the. I was reading there was a, a book titled The Arabic Influences on Early Modern Occult mm-hmm. Philosophy by Liana Sayaf. Mm-hmm. And she says that it's become generally accepted that it was likely penned by an author named Mas- Maslama al Kurtubi, who died in the year 964 CE and was referred to in one text as a man of charms and talismans. But um, he lived in the general assumed like geographical area that this originated from was uh, Al Andalus, which is like the Iberian Peninsula of basically like 10th century Spain, essentially, right? Right. When Spain was under you know uh, Islamic domination. Okay. Know? So that's that. That's the you know that Umayyad dynasty, and then as it broke up into the smaller you know Islamic dynasties. And so you have a. It's interesting because these are the these are the areas where you know we talk about the Crusades. You say, oh, we got mm. this from the Crusades. In fact, a lot of the you know the, the Islamic civilization in the Middle Ages was the highest and most advanced in the world at that point, and the Europeans had fallen behind. So when they wanted to, to learn about philosophy, about Plato or Aristotle, and then the occult sciences, they needed to get it from an Arabic source. And so Sicily in particular, and also Spain were two of the, the areas that were the most important because these were areas that had been under uh, Islamic domination and were conquered by the, in the Christian powers. So you had a lot of scholars around. I mean, when this was eventually translated in 1256 at the court of Alfonso the Wise, you had these teams of, that would be made up of uh, Islamic scholars, or at least that would read Arabic, they often were Jewish. And then... Um, Scholars who were writing in Latin, actually, it was in Spanish. So, Picatrix actually was first translated from Arabic into Spanish and then into Latin, because that was much more accessible for the rest of Europe than, than Spanish. Um, right. But that's really the there's incredible amount of stuff was translated at the court of Alfonso the Wise. And in fact, in addition to Picatrix, um, there's another book called Astromagia, which is another astrological grimoire that no one's really heard of. Um, but I have some translations of that on my on my website as well. But there's a great volume of all sorts of different texts of philosophy, of science, of astrology, of magic were translated um, in the, um, the 12th and 13th century uh, from Arabic into Latin, and then became the, the real sort of there's a sort of a mini Renaissance at that time period um, that went on. Um, yeah. And these, yeah. So I kind of ran out on that. So go flip to your your next question. Uh, just so, so that's a really good point that this is happening during this period where it's like Europe is still hardly coming out of the fall of the Roman Empire and and sort of coming out of what used to be referred to as the Dark Ages. But meanwhile, in places like Spain and in the different um, lands controlled by the Arabic Empire, knowledge and wisdom is sort of flourishing at this point in the sciences. And um, occult wisdom is having this sort of renaissance in Arabic amongst Arabic-speaking people or Arabic-speaking authors. And so, one of these authors was the author of our text, the Picatrix, who wrote this compilation that incorporated a bunch of earlier lore that he found in different texts on magic and, and astrological magic. And he claimed to have consulted over 224 books and to have written it over a period of of six years. 
um, and the text was originally written in Arabic. Right. One of the things I would point out is that nowadays we tend to exalt the author, you know, the individual genius who came up, who's the font of all this knowledge that they came up with on their own. Mm-hmm. They didn't have that attitude so much they in in the in the Middle Ages. Here, the Picatrix, the author, is interesting. He's quite happy to go and summarize things, you know, and he's essentially doing. I mean, Agrippa has a much more systematic um, treatment of this sort of area in three books of occult philosophy. He actually sits down and tries to make sense out of it and organize it. Picatrix is not that organized. There's a, it's, it's got a lot of bits and pieces of stuff put together. Sure. And, um, but again, that's something that they, they felt like, well, here, I'll summarize all the sources. You'll, you'll, you know, Lily does that. He'll say, here's the 15 different things that different people have said about this particular house. You know, even when he's yeah. trying to do a, a a job of more objectively explaining himself, it's and interesting. It becomes really valuable in instances like this where the Picatrix is drawing on texts that no longer survive. So we would have no knowledge of some of these doctrines if not for the fact that he summarized some of this stuff in different points in his text, even though it was a little a little scattered or a little bit not systematic. Right. He didn't really feel like he needed to basically rewrite everything. He mm-hmm. felt like it was enough to kind of collage it, you know. But it's interesting. The author will inject himself in occasionally. There's those points where he'll say, "Oh, you know, I tried this and it worked really well." There's mm-hmm. a couple portions where he said, "You know, I actually did this talisman and I had these very interesting results with it." So it's it's very interesting to see that. But a lot of it is he summarizes, or it doesn't necessarily speak with a coherent voice. You know, that's the mm-hmm. thing. There's not really you'll say Picatrix says X. Well, Picatrix says a lot of stuff. So that's one of the things to th- that you have to realize with this source is that it doesn't always have an con- internally consistent view of philosophy, of magic, of a lot of the issues that come up that are that are uh, dealt with in Picatrix. Yeah, and sometimes it draws on sources that can sometimes contradict or say different things because it's a compilation, but even that's still useful and informative. So um, going back to your timeline, so you're saying so it was written in Arabic probably around the 10th century, but then in the 13th century, the text, there's some sort of like interest in it around the court of Alfonso X of Castile in Spain. And they translate the text first into like medieval Spanish. And mm-hmm. then from the Spanish version, it's translated into Latin. Why was there this sudden like interest in this text in that specific court? Alfonso the Wise was incredible, really a polymath. Um, he uh, wrote poetry, some of the earliest Castilian poetry. He wrote, um, helped compile a, a legal code. Um, he was interested in chess. Um, and he just had an enormous interest in the uh, philosophy and science, and particularly in the occult sciences of astrology, alchemy, and magic. So he directed uh, his, he didn't do it personally, but he directed uh, these various teams of translators to translate just a, a large amount of material. Mm-hmm. So Picatrix is probably the, the most well-known uh, text that was translated at that at that court, um, but it really was you know the 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 as I was saying the the advanced Middle Eastern civilization really was seen as the the exemplar, and they if you wanted to learn you were going to have to go to a place where you could read Arabic and you could read these sources otherwise you're going to much of the philosophy or advanced science was closed to you. So, but the magic they didn't differentiate really between magic and other sciences and astrology. Those were all. To them, you know, mixed together because they don't have the split that we have between uh, science and and spirituality. To mm. to them, these were they had a unified scheme of knowledge. It was all part of the, you know, the 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 knowledge and, and philosophy were all connected. So, but I think Alfonso the Wise liked astrological magic. 
he, there was also, um, I said astromagia, and then there's also a lapidary, which is a description of the um, magical properties of various stones uh, oriented to the degrees of the zodiac. So that also is another text that exists that was translated um, at his court. Okay. So in this Latin translation that was based on the this, this Spanish translation, then the Latin translation goes on to influence the rest of the European tradition, as we've said. And the Latin translation, though, in some instances was a little different than the original Arabic, right? Or there were some things that were like I added. Said, and- lots of lots of sort of, you know, it's sort of if you if you that play that game of telephone where one person talks to another by the time you get to the end. When you're doing manuscript copying and you're doing translation, there's always going to be, you know, changes in typographical errors and, you know, in particularly in translation, there's going to mm-hmm. be differences of opinion about how to do that. So, you know, there are some significant differences between the Latin and the Arabic version, but again, the 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 the, the it's not as if it's changed 100. percent I mean, there's right. there's if you read, I've look, taken a look at the German translation of the Arabic, and it's like, yeah, there's significant differences, but the main corpus, I would say 80 percent of it is the same. Um, sure, there's just so, some pass some passages that get added and others that get dropped mm-hmm, and change how you translate things. You know, the meaning, the the nuance of things. Um, okay. So there, there's some, there's some definite differences, but um, the Arabic, the Arabic version, which um, the Anasif is apparently is translating, it will be very interesting to see. Um, but it was the Latin one that was actually used by um, astrologers and magicians in the in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. So certainly that's the source that we have the most exposure to, and and the most, um, and it works. I mean, the the um, the analogy I would make is that. You know, if you don't have the original 1931 version of Joy of Cooking, you have the you have the 2019 version. You can still make pancakes; the recipe still works. You know, you can still test it. So that's right. what I would say about Picatrix is that you know, because I've occasionally people say, "Well, we want the Arabic; it's the best." And I said, "Well, depends on what purpose you're looking for. If you're interested in the the influence on the Arabic milieu and the original, that's useful. But if you're interested in making astrological talismans in the same tradition that they did in the in the in the Middle Ages and Renaissance, then the Latin works very well for that as well. So each of the different translations, we can probably talk about those later. Each of them has a very very useful, and I I'd say get all of them. I mean, I did a five star review for the Atrell and Porica translation of the Latin because I thought you know this is really useful to have an academic translation because mm-hmm. it fulfills that role, that academic role. Whereas ours was really more focused on the practitioner. You know, someone that was interested in making talismans and learning how to do that from Picatrix. So each of the different translations has a different role, and each of them is really best for its own role it takes care of. And none of them is best overall. Okay, let's uh, let's introduce that then. Let's first talk about the critical editions, then let's talk about the modern translations. So uh, it seems like there was a flurry of scholarship in the first half of the 20th century um, where some academics got interested in the Picatrix and. Uh, eventually, uh, through the Warburg Institute or in connection with the Warburg Institute in London, produced a critical edition of the original Arabic text. Uh, and then eventually, in the 1980s, uh, David Pingree went back and produced a critical edition of the Latin text, where a critical edition is where you compare all the manuscripts and you try to reconstruct the archetype of what you think the original text looked like. So those two critical editions of both the Arabic edition and the Latin edition have been floating around for a few decades, but then it wasn't until the early 2000s that the first English translation um, was was initially released by Ouroboros Press, right? 
Yeah, and that was that's an interesting, you know, again, each thing is different. The Ouroboros Press version was really a book collector version. Mm. And it's a they they were gorgeous. I mean, even they did like a super expensive leather bound and a less expensive leather bound and then a, you know, hardcover. I yeah, don't know if I, they did I, pay- got, I found a, a, Ooh. a deluxe version Ooh, of deluxe. the original Ouroboros, uh, which is pretty impressive. So it was by William last Kiesel. name Skeezel. Mm-hmm. Who what works? He he's a he organized for years like the Esoteric Book Conference, right in Seattle. Right. This is it's interesting because there's a real split between sort of the book collectors and you know the astrologers or astrological magicians. Because the book collectors, what they're interested in is the binding and the you know it's and it is gorgeous. I have to say that those are really beautiful books. The problem was that the translation, it, well, it was from the Arabic, was from one manuscript by a guy who's, I, you know, he's just, he, he's an Arabic speaker, basically. So I had no knowledge of astrology. So my favorite passage from the, the uh, Ouroboros was, don't drop the arrow of fortune. And if you look at the Latin, it's don't put the part of fortune in a Caden house. And you can kind of okay. see how that would float that way, like the arrow right. versus the part of fortune and falling, don't drop falling like a Caden house. Caden means falling. So- right. It just, you know, that was the problem with it is it was gorgeous. It looked beautiful on the shelf, but as an actual translation that you could use either scholarly or for magical purposes, it, it had it had its problems. It was interesting. Sure. So, so but, William was able to find an Arabic speak, speaking guy to translate the text and they published that, I think, in two volumes for like books one and two and then books three and four. But that translation was widely criticized because it the the translator didn't know astrology and so it reads really weirdly in places yeah definitely but I mean, nonetheless it was still groundbreaking in terms of like one of the first translations of the text and i'm sure that brought a lot of like awareness and interest to it for the first time yeah i think that's definitely true because there's no doubt that picatrix is widely known you know it's it's just amazing how many people are aware of it in the outside the astrological community you know it's like the astrological magic is a very small subsection but many many people in the occult area or esoteric area are aware of picatrix so i think i think you're right that kiesel did a great service to that to that community by by getting it out there and when so when did you get into astrological magic like when did you become aware of it or first start seeing like references to the picatrix and like knew of it as a book that existed out there i have been the first talisman the, so when i started my Professional practice as an astrologer, and also my first talisman was in 1998. So okay. when I started getting interested in astrology, I remember it was just having a part of my spiritual seeking, and I, you know, I looked at Liz Green and you know things like that, and it was interesting, but it just seemed like a fog. Modern astrology, you couldn't get the detail out of it, and so when I first encountered was horary, and so you know the QHPs and the Olivia Barclay lineage. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with that. And so I studied with Carol Wiggers and then Lee Lehman. And so okay. when I started to do horary, electional astrology is sort of the sister of horary. I mean, once you've done horary, then you can get a good handle on electional. And then I started looking at things like Three Books of Occult Philosophy, and I met Robert Zoller and Rob Hand. And that's really where my introduction was to, to Picatrix. Now, uh, Bob Zoller um, had actually translated big chunks of it. So he actually was able to provide me with, you know, uh, you know, it wasn't a complete translation, but big chunks translated. And of course, his knowledge of philosophy was very deep, or it still is. Mm. So that was really my introduction to Picatrix, um, both as not just a grimoire with recipes, but having a pretty deep philosophical uh, basis as well. 
And so that is really what distinguishes Picatrix from most of else that we look at as a grimoire, because the grimoires will just be recipes. They're like do A, B, C, and D. Whereas Picatrix has a lot of philosophical material in it and has this deeper uh, Neoplatonic and Hermetic basis for understanding. Essentially, what the author did was to take a lot of different sources from different areas um, um, and then put them together, but explain why they worked. You know, explain why this is a you know, and essentially from a Neoplatonic, um, uh, you know, or Hermetic standpoint. You know, everything comes from the One. Everything emanates from the One. There are these chains of sympathy and correspondence that connect everything, and therefore the wise man can understand the sympathy and correspondence, and then can do magic using that understanding of the ultimate nature of the of the cosmos. And so that's what's I think most enthralling about Picatrix is that it does have this point the way to this deeper understanding of reality. Um, as much fun as it is to maybe do magic or follow the grimoires or whatever, I think that's really what also pulls people and has provided the interest and excitement about Picatrix is that there's this deep philosophical basis to the practice. Sure. So that's what um, drew you to the text, really got you into it and made you more interested in seeing eventually a full version of it or a fresh translation that could translate it more accurately and more clearly. And then eventually at some point in the what mid-2000s, you started finding a way to work towards that? Yeah. I, it's amazing how many people I sent translate, you know, the Latin copy. They said, oh, I'll do it. And you send a copy to them, they never hear from them again. Okay. And um, John Greer, though, he, you know, he makes a living as an author. You know, he's an mm-hmm. expert. He's not only was an expert magician, but also that's what he does. And his Latin is excellent. So he said, yes, let's go for it. And um, so I translated probably 25% of it. I handled all the astrological p- portions of it. My Latin is really bad. But I can look at a at a text with an astrological so recipe in it and translate that reasonably accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, and then John handled all the rest of the heavy lifting in terms of the philosophical and other passages. But I, I would say that the advantage of our text is that from a practitioner standpoint, that's what we focused on. And we wanted to make sure that the astrology was intelligible, that you could look at that as an astrologer and you can understand what those directions meant in terms of actually making a talisman. And I think that that's really what the, the you know the the advantage of our translation is. Um, it doesn't have the you know the sociological background or the historical background that the academic translations have, and that's why they're useful as well. But as a practitioner, if you're looking to say, okay, I'm interested in learning how to do this. Now the problem with that is you need to know electional astrology before you can do Picatrix. It's a, it's right. a bit like handing someone an advanced neuroso- neuroscience text and saying, you know, get your drill out and start doing your, you know, lobotomy when you haven't been to medical school yet. I mean, you have yeah. to learn all the basics of traditional astrology before you're going to be ready to work with Picatrix. Um, yeah, it seems like it takes into takes for granted that you already know astrology and even that you know a lot of the basis of. Uh, not just natal astrology, but also electional and even horary to some extent. Um, so, what year did you guys publish the tran- your translation oh, of let the Picatrix? Pull out. I've got one in front of me here. I'll have to take a look. I'd have to the exact year. Sure. Uh, 2010. 2010. Okay, so that's about 10 years after the first, I think, volume of the Ouroboros translation came out. So that's a ten-year gap between that first kind of very rough translation of the Arabic, and then you guys came in with a more full, like actual decent treatment by an astrologer of translating this text. 
And what are the different versions? Because you guys have released a few different versions of your translation, right? Yeah, I was going to talk about that a little bit. Here's the thing. One of the things about, I was talking about the book collector version, you know, and the, and the academic version. I'm happy to have a photocopy of something. I just need the information. I mean, mm-hmm. it'd be nice to have an expensive leather-bound version, but frankly, I'm happy to have the information. So that was kind of my, you know, focus on it. And one of the things that I've done is all the the Picatrix versions we publish are all print on demand. Mm-hmm. So what that does is allow us to actually make, you know, we don't have to go bankrupt doing it. I mean, the, the traditional way of being an academic, not an academic, but an esoteric publisher would be that you'd spend $10,000 or $20,000 paying for these really expensive bindings and they would sit there and they'd sell until they sold, until they sold out and then all of a sudden the price would go up. So it was right. never a business that anyone really could make much of a living at. And um, Yeah, I interviewed um, the guy who did the Regulus edition of Lily and their story about like getting together all the money for that and then printing up however many thousands of copies and then just having them sit in a warehouse and hoping they would sell out at some point, which they eventually did after like 15 or 20 years. That that sounds like a really rough way to do astrological publishing back in the day in the like 1980s, but luckily technology had changed by this point in the late 2000s when you sort of came onto the scene with some of this. Well, here's the thing: we were hoping that it would be published by Wiser or Llewellyn or someone like that. They wouldn't oh. touch it. I think oh, really? that the reputation of Picatrix, I think that the it just wasn't as it was well somewhat well known, but it wasn't as popular. Astrological magic was sort of outside the pale. I mean, astrologers just didn't want to deal with it. So yeah, I would have liked to hear that pitch meeting to like Wiser to Llewellyn of how that how that went. We didn't even get to meet with them. I mean, because okay. th- what's interesting is that you know John Greer is, was he'd published with those guys before. I mean, he was okay. a well-known author. So, mm-hmm. but they didn't want to have anything to do with it. And um, you know, I didn't quite get the details as far as what their problems were. But I think maybe they thought, well, no one will buy it, or it's got black magic in it, or things like that. But they didn't want to publish it. So we, well, of necessity, had to publish it ourselves. I mean, even historically, it was interesting. One of the things that I read was that. The Picatrix itself never was put into a printed edition, even back during the Renaissance. But instead, it was always the the Arabic and the Latin versions were always passed around as manuscripts of like That's hand correct. written, hand copied manuscripts. No, was, so there wasn't even any publisher at any point who was almost like brave enough to put it into a printed edition back then. So it's almost not surprising that that's still the case today. Yeah, for sort of different reasons. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. We can maybe talk about that with natural magic versus the how people think nowadays. But yeah, and in, it was just too hot. And you know, certainly, what I've noticed in the twenty years that I've been doing this is that the the atmosphere has just become more and more and more accepting, first of astrology and then of astrological magic. So, I mean, certainly for me, that's been a, a great improvement. But you know, when I started out, I mean, I was doing astrological magic, and you know, Bob Zoller, you know, Rob Hand, none of them wanted to touch it. I mean, they didn't want to actually. They didn't want to actually do make talismans, and mm. um, I was pretty much alone of the people that were practicing traditional astrology and the medieval and Renaissance style that were willing to actually do talismans. Now, now, you know, that's really changed. You know, particularly like again, people like Austin Kopic. You know, really, you know, he, no, there's a whole track at UAC. I mean, he's done an amazing job of of popularizing and then explaining and you know and really making this a legitimate study for for astrologers. Sure, but definitely that was not the case. And for a long time, you were the only person I remember first coming across your work with talismans in like 2003 or 2004 after I had 
learned about the concept of talismans when I was studying at Kepler and I was reading one of Holden's works and he was talking about Bonatti making talismans and I went out and searched and I found some like mercury talisman that you you had just made recently so you were doing this stuff long before anybody else and what sources were you drawing on at that point circa like the early 2000s well we had you know three books of occult philosophy has a lot of stuff in it i mean okay, book so two Agrippa. book 2 has all these images in it and that's really the the that's got some of the guts of what you're doing in terms of the particularly because people are most interested in planetary talismans I mean, you can mm. do planetary talismans, you can do mansions of the moon, you can do fixed stars, you can do decans, you can do house talismans, but people really are most comfortable with planetary talismans. And so that's, you know, that's what we started with. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, I'll look out now and, you know, what I sort of have done is the architecture and it's not always obvious. For example, the idea of saying, okay, here is the source that I'm using and the title and page, which I require my students to put for answers in the course. You have to sort to source. And then here's the factors I actually used in the election, and here's the actual chart. That's kind of almost just sort of de rigueur now for anyone doing, you know, selling talismans or doing astrological magic. But that was the first person again to kind of start using that. It seems very logical, right? But that rigor is something that was lacking, um, you know, before before I came along. I kind of I'm gonna say invented. I more manifested it. It seems very. It seems like the logical thing that you want to do. Um, but if you're not going to take a serious approach to talismans, you're not going to put that sort of level of, of interest into it. Um, sure. So, um, so in, I, ter in terms of translations, yeah, so you guys published yours in 2010, and mm -hmm. then uh, more recently, there was a couple of academics who published another more academic translation of the Latin version of the Picatrix that came out just last year, I think in 2019, right? Right. That's the Atrell and Porica. Um, again, I don't know their names, but that's how to pronounce them. But that's the they're in Canada at a at a university in Canada, mm -hmm. and um, so they use the same source, the the Pingree's uh, critical edition, and then turned out a very good translation of of Picatrix. Um, and um, you know, I think it's again, it's very useful to have the academic view of it. You know, and theirs is specifically for. As I said, students um, and you know uh, of of history, it's a his, it's for academics. Um, so their focus is not so much on the practitioners. Um, right. I don't think they can. You know, if you're if you're in academic academia, I don't think you really can come out and say yes, this is for practitioners. So right. so here's the cover of that one. So it's mm -hmm. titled Picatrix, a Medieval Treatise on Astrological Magic. And then is this the cover? Is this the first edition of yours? Uh, yeah, or... we don't use that that one anymore. Okay, um, uh, but new, you have the 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 main one now is yeah the, this one the black one okay yeah right so that's the Liber Atratus edition yeah I was gonna say with the with the print on demand one of the things I thought was really cool on, about print on demand is that you can just leave the edition sitting on the on a server so mm -hmm. if you want to have multiple versions of it you can so what I did was to go through and just say oh it would be fun to have I have a Liber Rubius a red version of it. And then I have, uh, you know, it has sort of a dance macabre kind of motifs in it, lots of sort of, you know, skulls and things like that. Just, just, I just thought it would be fun. And mm. then I actually have a um, color uh, version of it, which is really beautiful. It's eight and a half by eleven, and it's got it's full color, so it has all sorts of beautiful illustrations and and um, fonts and things like that in it. And in fact, for a while here uh, in Iowa City, I had a book binder, and I was doing these leather bound. They actually were print on demand. So we mm. would do these um, color photocopies, and then the bookbinder would bind them with these incredibly ornate 
you know, it was what's called a, um, a emperor folio, which was huge. It was like, you know, like two foot it was gigantic, okay. but they were really gorgeous. So we did them, you know, but I was able to make a profit on it because someone would order it and then I would go ahead and make it for them on the spot. So it was sort of like a traditional print on demand. Okay. So it's the thing I've been able to do is, I mean, I've been a professional astrologer and this is where I derive my income from for the past 22 years. And mm-hmm. so from a business standpoint, you know, you need to have something that works as a business. And, you know, the, 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 the standard way of doing it, like I said, of doing these really expensive bindings and then putting them in the warehouse, you know, that's, that's a money losing proposition. Um, and in fact, I, one of the things I suggested to Ben Dykes a long time ago with his um, translation of Bonatti's Liber Astronomia was I said, hey, go ahead and do print on demand. So he, that's, you know, because so th- they're available. I mean, print on demand will never go out of print. You know, you don't have that problem of these wonderful texts that, you know, you have 500 copies of it and all of a sudden it's no longer available. Um, yeah, I think he eventually followed your advice because his, his first two translations were not print on demand and he had to like invest and have stock for these big, thick um, hardback books of Benati and then Solid Masha Allah. But I think by the time of his third book, he switched to print on demand around 2009, 2010, around the time that you released your translation. Um, so there, there's those translations, and then finally there's one more translation that's coming out, hopefully in the near future. And this is an upcoming translation from the original Arabic t- text that Liana Saif is putting together. And she actually Interestingly, like live tweeted her progress as she was translating the text on Twitter um, through her Twitter handle, which is uh, Maslama Q. Uh, so hmm. that was interesting to follow, and I think she's getting ready to publish that at some point in the next year or two. I, I think. Yeah, I, I and that's that's what I heard as well. It'll be really interesting to see. You know, the Arabic it'll just essentially give us another perspective. We'll be able to see the you know this the um, you know the Arabic version of it. And the differences and everything. Again, it will be an academic translation, mm-hmm. so the focus is going to be on the historical and sociological uh, basis of it, rather than using it to make talismans. It will be interesting to see the astrology. I mean, that's it's just a problem for academics because they don't specialize in it. I mean, the Caskin Clark translation, which I love, of Ficino's three books on life, which is a wonderful text. They got confused between the uh, being combust and the via combusta. I mean, things like that. Okay. You yeah. know, it's just not their forte, and yet they're not going to be consulting a traditional astrologer to f- to get it right because that's sure. kind of beyond the pale for them. Well, so hopefully, well, I have I, I don't we'll we'll see what she comes up with. I have faith in her. She's from the Warburg Institute, and there's been more penetration of like astrologers into academia in the past decade or two, like you know Rob Hand or Dorian Greenbaum or other people like that. So I think hopefully they're starting to talk more, and I know. Liana has has worked with or had some interactions with um, two traditional astrologers that recently went and got their degrees. Um, who I interviewed just a few months ago, who wrote on the heavenly spheres, and I'm spacing out their name. Do you know the name of the couple no. from Port- Portugal? I'm talking oh, about. Oh yeah, I know who you're talking about, but again, <laughs> I'm the same yeah, problem yeah. with memory. I think that uh, yeah. Helena Avalar and Luis Ribeiro, yeah. those are the two. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, it's still officially you're not allowed to do it. You know, it's one of those things is that academia is still in the grip of the atheistic materialism paradigm. And mm-hmm. as much as there's sort of some people that are on the side doing things, officially you're just not gonna be able to come out and say, yeah, this stuff works and here's how to use it. I mean, that would sure. that would put a that would put an academic, you know, you'd probably lose your job over that. And um, sure. it's amazing. Well, it'll be interesting that- uh when she publishes that just because things will finally be that seems like the last piece that's missing and then 
everything related to the Picatrix will be in modern translation finally. Um, why don't we transition though into talking about like the actual contents of the text a little bit if you're Definitely. if you're up for it? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So um, contents of the text. It's got some astrological magic, and by astrological magic, a large part of that is specific electional rules for creating talismans. Uh, but the text also has some like magical potions and spells, and it also has a lot of different philosophical passages from Hermetic and Neoplatonic and sort of quasi-Aristotelian streams of philosophy that were all going on in the medieval period around this time. So it's very much a synthesis in the 10th century of, of essentially like a medieval astrology and magic. Oh, definitely. Um, the the confecciones, as they're called, are sort of like things like, you know, the blood of a white dog and the, you know, that sort of, which I don't bother with. I don't do anything with animal parts. So that's that's sort of like, it's in the translation. We, we debated that, like, well, we're going to do a complete translation regardless of the fact that we don't want anybody to ever do that stuff. So I hope yeah. that people are not running around using our book and, and using the, the animal part stuff, hopefully. I'm a Buddhist, so I wouldn't be too happy about it. But I, we didn't feel like we should, we should censor it. You know, it's just one of those things of like, you know what? I don't approve of it. I'll never do it myself. I'll even say in the translation, I don't think you should do it, but I don't feel like censoring it for people. So that was the that was something that we we did debate with. But sure. And there definitely are distinct parts, because especially at the beginning, it starts off doing magical elections or or astrological magic, which it seems largely focused on picking an electional chart and attempting to like capture the power of the planets in an object like a talisman or an image and using that for different purposes and it's very much like it's it's astrology but it's almost a magical application of astrology but then definitely later in the text at different points it does take a, a turn and starts focusing on more like almost classical witchy type occult spells and sort of um, mixtures or, or almost like alchemical recipes in different chapters. Yeah, that's the confectione part too. Okay. So, you know, what's interesting about it is the causality is never quite clear. There's a lot of wandering around. And I think you were talking about that in your notes about wandering around about how this stuff actually works. And mm. I think that reflects uh, the, the various differences of opinion among astrologers at the t at the time is how does astrology work? You know, you have an almost a physical model. You know, um, you know Ptolemy's talking about heat and you know the humors. You've got Alkindi, who's got these spiritual rays, not electromagnetic. They're definitely spiritual, but still a, a more mechanical sort of view of it. You also mm -hmm. have this idea that if you natural magic, you know, natural magic is beautiful. Because at the time, you wouldn't have to worry about Ficino like natural magic because you didn't have to worry about, oh, I'm calling on demons or something. It just works naturally. If I make it at a particular time, I put a, a scorpion on it, and then at, at, when Scorpio's rising or whatever, then that will affect scorpions naturally. You mm -hmm. know, it's, there's, a, there's a, the, the occult virtue, in other words, hidden powers of things, and it's mechanistic. But the, the, the final method, which is I've increasingly drawn to, is essentially almost like astral religion. I mean, the, the planets and the celestial. Um, you know, every celestial body is essentially a spirit or an angel, and you can invoke that, and that's that's where the magical power comes from. So all these different causalities are kind of mingled together, and they're never really quite clear as to whether or not you know Picatrix doesn't really put its finger and say, "Well, this is the one right one." It kind mm -hmm. of mentions all the different possible types of causality, and I think that what I've ended up doing is what have, what's resonated with me has been more of that 
I said astrologian, and I almost characterize myself not as an astrological magician, but a celestial priest. And so mm. that's the, and the theurgic side of it, and the and the more devotional side of it is what has drawn my attention. I wouldn't say it's right. I just think that that's the area that I've personally found I've been drawn to. And plenty of people are still doing straight up magic, you know, saying, "Okay, I want wealth, so I'm going to do a wealth talisman," and that's that's perfectly legitimate uh, as well. Um, yeah. So that that's an area if you want to delve into any of that we can we can definitely talk about those various things. Yeah, let's do that. Let's touch a little bit first on what um one of the big things that it does is as electional astrology for magical purposes. Mm -hmm. And um it introduces different electional principles that are are focused on or I thought we could focus on or or introduce some of those principles that are used in the Picatrix. One of them though that we might want to talk about as a meta topic is just the idea if people aren't familiar with it of the idea of uh, talismans, amulets, and images, and how that works, or um, not how it works, but just what that general concept is. If we could like introduce it really quickly, I mean, really, it's interesting because people tend to think of a talisman as. Let me just pull one out. I've got some sitting up here, nicely ziplocked. So I'm not actually touching it. Okay. Um, it's th- you know, this this is what people think a talisman is. It's a, it's yeah. a pendant. Right or like a, a metal, ring. a metal object that yeah, has metal, you something inscription. Put it on a cord. You know, you wear it mm-hmm. around your neck. Right. Uh, that's that people. Okay, that's a, that's a talisman, um, or a ring. That's another thing. The, generally, when people are contacting me, when they're thinking of talismans, they're thinking a pendant or a ring. Anything mm-hmm. can be a talisman. You know, you think of I, I've done mirrors. You can see in the background here. You can see all these different mirrors. Those have all been made as talismans, and they. Um, you know, think of a sword. You know, Excalibur. That, that's a talisman. Um, in the Renaissance, they did uh, gardens, they did houses, and in fact, Picatrix talks about a uh, whole city called a, a Dacentine that was built with astrological magical principles. So, really, anything can be a talisman. So it's like anything that is born at a specific moment in time, um, where you can try to capture the. Astrological essence of the cosmos at that moment in time through the electional chart for that moment. Yeah, that's or I mean another way to think about it is that you're inviting the spirit into the talisman. You know that, that and, and Picatrix talks about that. Said you know you've got the union of spirit and body. You know that the talisman is the body and the, and then the astrological spirit then is like the soul of that talisman. So that's that's another way of looking at it. Or uh, and Agrippa talks about this. It's like a ray thing. The rays hit this at a particular moment, you know, from the planets or whatever, and then they 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 freeze it. Mm. So there's a, a variety of different. I would say there are perspectives. You know, it's a bit like light. Light has the, light can be seen either as a wave or as a particle. If you if you treat it as a particle, it acts as a particle. If you treat it as a wave, it acts as a wave. But the underlying reality is going to transcend those those characterizations. But as a as a way of modeling, as a way of interfacing, we need to have a model. And so, sure. essentially, what's the resonant model for you? You know, do you do you like the idea of the natural magic that if I make the at the right time that the you know the beams are hitting it, or it's kind of you know, that's how it works? Or again, like I'm saying, I'm doing devotional practice. I'm calling on these spirits that I have this long term relationship with, and I'm sort of renewing my relationship with them. You know, when, when I make a talisman, so that okay. or to me, a talisman is like a, a cell phone. It's a means of contacting that spirit. The power is not from the talisman itself, or not like a battery. It's just a way of communicating with Jupiter or, or you know, a fixed star, right? Mm. Or you can think of it as charging it. People talk about, oh, I'm charging the talisman. 
So these are all valid ways of conceptualizing it. None of them are capturing the true reality, which, which is going to include and transcend all those different conceptualizations. So from a practical standpoint, though, there is definitely like a focus on creating something at a specific moment in time that's been chosen ahead of time and that they're focused on a specific astrological chart set for a specific like date and time and place that has a certain um, configuration of the planets at that time? Definitely. I mean, the, okay. the timing, the time, date, and place is the absolute key. You know, that's, and that's what we're doing here. Essentially, we're doing a type of ceremonial magic, right? But it's constrained by you're doing the ceremony at a specific time for only for astrological spirits. So that's mm. essentially what astrological magic is, is a type of ceremonial magic, but a very focused type of ceremonial magic. But just as you said, though, it has to be a specific time. You got to look at that chart. Now, what factors you use, that's incredibly variant, right? But definitely, you're going to have to have a specific time, date, and place to do it. And again, a full what I do are full chart elections. You know, I'm not just doing waning moon. I mean, waning moon is half the year, but six months out of the year would be good for it. I mean, the power right. of the of the of the election comes from the specificity of it, you know. And and you're really going to want to. I mean, typically the, the the time range that we have available will be half an hour to 45 minutes to an hour. I mean, rarely we're going to have more than an hour. I mean, the fact right. is just not going to line up, you know, for more than that time period. And so you um, mentioned that most of the elections, are, or at least there's a tendency to focus on like planetary elections. So mm -hmm. creating an election for a time when a planet is well situated by, for example, being in its own domicile. So let's say a Mercury talisman would be um, elected for a time when Mercury is in Virgo, which is the sign of its domicile and exaltation. And then you would also want to put it in a prominent place in the chart, like um, in the, the rising sign or in the ascendant so that it becomes the ruler of the first house. Um, what other things that would you look for? You in well, a I wouldn't chart like again. That? Here's the thing: is that if we're talking about a planet, mm -hmm. and then this is by everyone. You know, it's interesting. There's incredible debate right now because we now have an astrological magic community, right? And so we're getting all sorts of different people. And again, what I want to emphasize is this: is that there is not one correct way to do this. And anyone who says that they're right and everyone else is wrong doesn't know what they're talking about. But you can, like I said, what you can do is to find what resonates for you. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and there's gonna, what I think there is a lot of sort of right methods. I mean, and then there's an the infinity of wrong methods, right? But no one correct way of, of doing this stuff. So, my methodology um, for a planet is to say, what I want to do is make, uh, find a time when that planet is really strong. Mm -hmm. So, just as you said, it would be um, sign or exaltation or, um, or multiple lesser dignities, because you can add, you can have a jackpot where you've got like plus six or plus eight or something like that um, in a talisman. Um, those are kind of nice. So essential um, dignities of like domicile, exaltation, triplicity, bound, and face. Yeah, I would say face, term, triplicity, exaltation, and sign, because I use a Lily style, you okay. know, terminology. Mm -hmm. Just just what I was trained in. Um, so and then so that so as I say, Mercury and Virgo, that'd be great. Mercury and Gemini, that would be great too. Mercury rising. Now, what I'm looking at is the ascendant. And the midheaven, not so much as their house, but because those are from an angularity standpoint. So you think of the most powerful points from an angularity standpoint are going to be rising as the most powerful, and midheaven is going to be a little bit less, but almost equivalent to it. Mm -hmm. So not not as a house ruler, but because that at that point they're going to be manifesting their power most strongly. Then planetary hour. Planetary hour is really important. And if you look at again, I have a there's a section in Picatrix's, I think, book 
Book one, chapter four, has a whole bunch of paradigmatic sort of planetary elections. And mm-hmm. they're very much just like you said, you know, Mercury in Virgo, Mercury rising, and then the planetary hour. That's always emphasized as being a really key factor in terms of, of the power. Uh, the day the day and hours. So for example, if you're doing a Mercury talisman, you would want to do it on Mercury's day, which is uh Lunar Marty Wednesday, right? Not necessarily. Again, if you look back at Picatrix, their focus is on planetary hour, right? Okay. So here's the thing. If, if you're going to do an election, you're going to have to pick a certain limited number of factors. And this is something right. that what I call, I mean, I, I, the, um, you know, I'm in a debate on, the, on one of these groups with what I call the, the, I call them the OCD school. And the OCD school of, of astrological magic looks at 50 factors. And if any of those 50 factors are either there or lacking, your head will explode. So they're very right. paranoid about the chart. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh my God, it's a Mercury talisman, but, but you know, Pluto's in the third house. I'm like, well, so what? And they're like, oh right. no, that's really bad. So there's all these, they're looking at m- like a billion factors. I'm like, you know what, guys, if you're going to be practical about elections, you're going to have to focus. You're probably mm-hmm. only going to be able to choose about five, four or five factors. And so, right. like I said, you got the planet is essentially dignified, strongly placed, planetary hour, and then not afflicted. And that's right. that's going to be key too. It's not so making not a yeah, hard aspect like a square right. in opposition applying, with though. Mars or Saturn. Applying though, not separate. Separating is fine. Okay. This is this is you know like like horary right electional astrology at least in the, the the what I was taught is that and if you look at Bonatti for example he's like if you separate you're okay. Mm-hmm. So applying square, applying opposition of any planet, applying conjunction of of afflicted planet or undignified um, Saturn or Mars. And then combust or retrograde. So those okay. are kind of your major afflictions. So you don't want to have it majorly. Now, moon void, of course, well, whatever. Mm-hmm. Doesn't worry me. Right. I mean, void, of course, is not in medieval and Renaissance astrology a disaster. It's not on the level of detriment or fall or retrograde or combust. Yeah, there's like a hierarchy of like worst case scenario things to avoid at all costs versus like mid level or like lower level annoyances. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes people, especially coming from the modern tradition, don't know how to balance those because so few electional rules actually survived. And like Void of Course is one of them that seems like it just kind of blown out of proportion in the 20th century. Yeah. I mean, what my theory to that is that if you look at modern astrology, which I, it's so funny because I, one of my favorite things to do is a natal psychological reading. I love it. I'm mm-hmm. good at them. I love doing them. So I'm not down on modern astrology by any means. But the thing about modern is, because it's built on a psychological perspective, everything's positive. I mean, Saturn in Aries is good, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not bad. It's just, you know, it, it, Saturn, you know, he's serious, but he's also happy or something like that. Mm-hmm. But in order to, you know, so the there's a few things that are malefic, like uh, void of course moon and retrogradation. They have to carry the weight of all the negativity for everything. So they okay. become really bad. That's a good know? point. Retrogradation, those are the only two things that are negative in modern astrology. So they're really bad. I mean, and you have retrograde. So because it started out with Mercury, like Mercury retrograde, well, then you don't sign a contract. Well, I suppose I could see that. But then Mercury retrograde don't do anything. Then any planet retrograde don't do anything. Now there's shadow periods. So for every planet, retrograde is bad. And then there's shadow periods before now. I mean, it just becomes way out of control. And, um, you know, retrogradation, oh, it's, it's definitely, it's an affliction, but- for for example, if you're doing a Mercury talisman, does it matter if Jupiter's retrograde? I mean, you're talking about emphasizing the power of Mercury, right? Right. And so that's again, 
there's not a right or wrong way to doing this. I'm not coming in and saying, look, that if you want to look at all these factors, you, that's wrong. I'm just saying, this is my methodology. And I think the key is you want to have a methodology because what I see people doing, both modern and traditional with elections, is they just start looking at charts. They look at the chart and then they say, oh, this is a good chart. And they don't have a methodology. They don't have factors that they're looking at. Whereas the way I'm looking at it is I'm saying, you know what? Okay, Mercury talisman, let's look out to the next year. When's Mercury going to be in Virgo? Okay, and then I can block that out. Okay, if Mercury's in Virgo, when's Mercury arising? Okay, when's Mercury planetary hour? And so I have a very systematic way of finding elections. So that's what I recommend to people. I'm not saying you have to be like me, but I would suggest to people it's a good idea to have a methodology as opposed to just kind of flailing away looking at electional charts. Sure. Um, uh, so to ground this, um, I want to give an, a, an example because, like, really early on, the Picatrix itself like introduces an example of a talisman. Um, so let me, I'm just going to read this tra- sure. this paragraph. What page this is, is it? So this is actually from the Atrell and Perica oh, tra- okay. translation. Uh, just because it was able to do the um, the passage like citation numbers. So this is from chapter. Uh, book one, chapter five, sentence one, or passage okay. one. So it says, when you wish, when you wish to craft an image, or otherwise a talisman, for in- inducing love between two individuals and give their love and joy the strength of an oak, make images in both of their likenesses. Make the image in the hour of Jupiter or Venus with the head of the dragon ascending. So that's the North Node. Um, let the moon be with Venus, or looking towards her with a favorable aspect. Let the lord of the seventh house look upon the lord of the first house in a trine or sextile aspect. Afterwards, join the images together in an embrace and bury them at the home of the at the home of one of the two people, i.e., at the person's home whom you wish to feel most in love. Uh, whatever your desire is shall come about. Yeah. So, so that's like one of the first examples of like a, it's like a love talisman. That yeah. It's... What that is, is a house-based talisman. So this is okay. not a planetary talisman because it's not really based around the planet. The key thing, the key factor in that tal- that talisman is the, the relationship between the first house ruler and the seventh house ruler. So right. the first, you know, that's love, right? And they're making mm-hmm. a trine, right? And so right. that's really the essence of that election. And so um, the house-based talismans are really interesting because, and this is an interesting one too, because it's a double talisman, right? You're right, making you're two, of two them. images. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting is these are statuettes. I mean, the mm. earliest talismans are basically, they're not pendants, they're not rings, they're actually statuettes. And you're making them look like the person. So they have that, because they look like the person, they, they actually have a, a magical sympathetic connection to them, right? So, right. And that's coming out of some older, like Neoplatonic tradition or Hermetic tradition of. Um, insoling or like enlivening statues or statues. Exactly, statuettes. Corpus Hermeticum. Mm-hmm. You got the whole, the, this, this, the God making passages in the Corpus Hermeticum. And so the other thing is it works. <laughs> so, that's, so that's the thing. That's your main thing is that this actually works. And I guess that's one of the questions that people would have coming into this is would something like this work? So you, you make an image of you know these two people and then you do it at an astrologically uh, propitious time that matches what you're shooting for with the ruler of the ascendant and the seventh. And then you feel like after doing this for years and making talismans like this, that you've actually seen effective or positive results, that this is something that's legitimate. 
first of all, I'm not sure. I'm not a big fan of of doing a love magic for a specific person. Yeah, maybe I'm. And I'll tell you this why is not a good is. example. Yeah, but I just tell you what. Yeah, but that's because that's. I think that comes into it. Here's the thing about doing love magic for a specific person. There's a problem that the user of the magic gets obsessed with the person that they do the spell on. That there's a certain mm. amount of backfire because when you start feeding energy into that, you know, the the attraction between those two people, that can be a, a, a downfall of it. The other thing about it is is that it's less likely to be successful if you're interested in a specific person than opposed to just doing love in general. So if you mm. did that exact same talisman and just said love, right? Bring mm. me love. You're more likely to have better effects than and that. When mm. the more specific you're trying to get of a of a effect, the less likely it is to happen. It's just okay. the reality of it. I mean, because this is real. You know what I'm saying? This is not this is not Harry Potter, right? This is not a movie. In a movie, you can put ten cents of effort and get a million dollars out of it. It doesn't work that way. Spiritual is just like anything else. It works, but it's limited. So you have to spend a lot of time and energy and effort if you want a big result. You know, and the less sure. time you put into it, the less result you get out of it. Um, when it, and it sounds like you're tr you're invoking some sort of energy or power or theme in your life, especially in the way that you're you're talking about or conceptualizing it here, like invoking love as a theme to become more prominent in your life in some way. If you're doing some sort of general, let's say like a Venus or a, a love talisman. Yeah, I mean, what I would what I would suggest to people is I'd say, look here, if if Venus is because another issue is how you coordinate with your chart, but let's just say Venus mm -hmm. is well well. You know, dignified. It's in Taurus or something in your chart. I had someone today that had asked me, "Is a Venus talisman okay?" And they had Venus in Taurus. I'm like, "Yeah, great." Mm -hmm. So, um, so if you do a Venus talisman and you do my devotional style, there is an effect. People tend to think of let's make an effect, uh, change the outward world to conform to me, right? There's mm -hmm. also, uh, and I think it's even more important in a lot of ways. You're changing yourself. If you're a more loving person, if you manifest Venus, right, you're going to get love more easily. So, and not to say it's all in your head or it's all based on belief or it's all internal or something like that, but there is definitely a strong spiritual impulse, you know, an effect of these talismans. But what's going to happen? Who knows? I mean, people email me and they say, well, I win the lottery. I'm like, no, you know, and I had someone in fact today email me and say, I did this Venus talisman and it failed. And I said, don't, don't buy one of mine then. I said, that's sure. a red flag right there, you know, mm -hmm. because Perhaps you're being unrealistic about the effects, but it's failed for you already. I'm not. -uh, I don't want to sell you a talisman. And I spent a lot of time saying to people, "Nope, don't buy a talisman." So I guess that brings us to one of the questions I had that Austin and I struggled with a little bit, which was attempting to define magic or what astrological magic is in this context. And one of the themes that seemed like it kept coming up for me in reading through the Picatrix is at least in some of what they were doing was. Actualizing the will or something that was desired through hidden or or occult forces as like a major theme. Um, I mean, I would say that that is what a lot of people are doing when they're doing magic, right? And you could even call that magic, right? But what I'm doing is a little different than that because I'm a Buddhist, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm a Zen Buddhist, and so the realization that I have had is there is no self, right? So it's a little foolish for me to try to go and actualize something that doesn't even exist. And the desires that I have, that's my problem is that I have the desires, right? That's where all my suffering is coming from. Mm -hmm. So there is, but then you get that fate and free will thing. But so that's what I would say about it. As I said, yeah, I think people do try to use magic to get what they want, right? How successful they're going to be in doing that and how that's really going to help them in the long run, I don't know. From a spiritual standpoint, that's a little bit. At the same time, hey, people need wealth. 
People need friendship. People need love. And to do it through a spiritual means, I don't think is any worse than trying to achieve it through material means, right? But okay. trying, to, trying to go out and get what I want as a way of making myself happy is going to fail in the long run. I'm just getting that from a broad spiritual perspective. So, sure. So that's, that's what I would say. And for me, what I enjoy about astrological magic is the fact that I've built up this incredible relationship. I mean, I do a daily planetary ritual. So for, for example, today is Wednesday. So I'm wearing sort of a mixed color for, for Mercury. And I will invoke Mercury. And then so tomorrow is th Thursday, I'll invoke Jupiter. I've been doing that for e the planet of the day for 20 years. So I have mm -hmm. a really, really close relationship with those particular celestial spirits. Those are that, that and, and what I'm asking them to do is I'm saying, look, manifest yourselves through me. You know, and I can look at my life and I have incredible success. You know, I and I really do attribute that to a lot of this astrological practice. But as far as individual, oh, you know, amazing things that happen, I have some examples of that. But I think that you know, I remember in your notes you're saying, you know, Picatrix says if you do this, it'll definitely happen. I'm like, nah, it won't. I mean, <laughs> that's a little would, bit of marketing on there on the Picatrix's part. Would you say at least that there is a preoccupation with actualizing one's will? In the Picatrix, or oh, yeah, at least definitely. attempting and magicians to. in general. That's what that's to me the essence of a magician, right? Is that will, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the main differences between a magician and an astrologer is the astrologer will watch the cycles unfold, and they you'll predict or you'll forecast based on those cycles. The magician says, "No, I want to act. I want to use right. that for a particular purpose." And the astrological magician is this weird, you know, sort of synthesis of those because you you will have to have will, but you can only act at a particular moment. Yeah, there was a really interesting contradiction, not contradiction, but tension there because in the astrological magic, they're giving you rules for elections to pick out in order to get what you want or to actualize your desire. Like many of the rules will end with this common, these different variations of the same phrase that I wrote down, like whatever your desire is shall come about, or whatever he seeks from the lords with whom he interacts, he will obtain, or, um, once the image is completed, keep it near in secret, out of sight. When you go before a lord and seek an office or a promotion from him, you will have it. Or another one says, what you seek will happen, and so on and so forth. Um, but there's an interesting tension between these electional rules for trying to get what you want, but then the occasional reminder and statement that the electional chart has to be connected with the natal chart and has to already be promised in the natal chart, ideally. Or connected with like a horary chart that has already promised that there's good chances of that thing happening before you should then attempt to like do a talisman or elect it somehow. What I would say is this: is that when I do astrological magic, I don't know whether I'm causing the effect or announcing the effect. I have no sure. idea. Okay, you see what I'm saying? So it's, yeah. it's if you're going to be a magician and you're going to act and you're going to do this stuff, it's a lot of effort. You need to come from a perspective of will and action because you're not going to have enough energy to do it otherwise. You're not going to have that willpower. But mm -hmm. you cannot take that as being the ultimate reality, right? You have to step back from that because it's the fate and free will question. I mean, as astrologers, right. we confront that constantly. But the reality of it is, is that that the cosmos transcends fate and free will. That that the the actual ultimate reality of the one is has the nature of both being fated and having free will at the same time. It's that mm. that logic, that transcendent logic, is very weird. But that's that's you know it has both. It's that light, you know, the wave particle uh, combination that's going on. 
And so what we're doing is if you're going to be a magician, you need to take act from a will perspective. But you can step back from that as an astrologer and have a faded perspective about it as well. And I refuse to say with the astrological magic, I do it. But again, like I said, I mean, the first thing I did was this, the only malefic magic I've ever done was a, a pest control. It was a rat, rats be gone. It's on my website. And we had a rat in our townhouse in Washington, DC. And I thought, I'm going to do some astrological magic. I'll get rid of it. So I followed this whole, you made an image of a rat and you got dirt from the four corners of the house and folded and everything. And as I did this, I elected a time that was extremely malefic for the rat. And I started to get really angry. It was very weird. I, the emotional, it just swept over me, this incredible anger. And then I buried it. And then the rat, it got caught in a trap. Now, I don't even know when, I don't know if it was before, it was contemporaneous, but it could have been before, it could have been after, but it was within a day or so. So I don't know. Did I cause that or did I announce it? You see what I'm right. saying? Am I aligning yeah. myself with this or did I actually, did the ego self cause that? Or is it, you see what I'm saying? So that that's a mystery really. And I think that from a practical standpoint, you need to feel like, well, I'm causing it, I suppose, to act. You wouldn't act otherwise. But if you're really a higher level of awareness, you, you know, you, it's manifesting. You know, this is a manifestation of it. And, and perhaps what that moment was necessary for you to do that, you know, but to, to, you know, the ultimate causality is, is really unclear. So that's not something that we worry about when you're making talismans, but it's something that you and I can think about now and recognize that, you know what I mean? There's not a, there's not an ultimate answer to that. Yeah. There's certainly anybody that deals with electional astrology long enough runs into that question occasionally of, um, because you'll sometimes see people that Will like let's say get married and they'll just have an amazing electional chart and there was no intervention whatsoever on the part of an astrologer. <laughs> um, so just naturally having positive alignments like that, or other times like doing an electional chart and having something come up in the future, but then having something interrupt and make it so that you can't like use the election at that time. So it becomes out of your hands in some ways. One of the things I've noticed with elections is sometimes they'll be incredibly easy. You'll start mm. looking and it'll just pop out at you, this amazing election. Right. And other times, like for example, when I wanted to move into my house, seriously, for a month, 24 hours a day for, for 60 days, there wasn't a good election. Mm. I could not elect the moving into my house. I had to have a bad right. election for it. And this house has been kind of a pain. Sure. It's just, it, but there was no way I could avoid it. There was yeah. no window open for me to do anything with that. It was just, that that's, was just stuck. Well, and that's one of the interesting things about the electional rules, even in the Picatrix, is that some of them are so highly specific or, or restrictive that it's almost impossible sometimes to find a chart anywhere in the near future that will have that. So it's like one of the things you start wrestling with as soon as you do electional astrology is your own limitations of just having to work with what is available to you in the time frame that you have in your the vicinity of whatever you have to work with. And that in and of itself can sometimes be very restraining or Give you a real sense of of fate in some sense, and and that you're you're really just trying to work with what you have, and you don't have a complete ability to just like exert your will, one hundred percent over everything, with no restrictions. One of the things I loved about your book was that you, for front and center, you put fate right in the title, and I thought that was very brave of you, and right. very much in the tradition because as astrologers, we are the votaries of fate. We are. Mm. That is our. That is what. That's who. That's who we're really focused on, and but that's very much antithetical to the modern way of thinking. Because modern people want to think I can do anything I want, 
you know? And they can mm -hmm. accept maybe, okay, I'm 56 years old, I'm 5'6", I'm not going to play in the NBA, no matter how much positive energy I bring to that. It's not happening. But that's mm -hmm. physical. Other than physical, they're like, oh, I can be a billionaire. Nope, not going to happen. It's just not. I mean, it's just, it's just you, can, you, can, you can know with people, you can look at their chart, for example, and say, this is somebody who's not going to be a billionaire, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, you know, at the same time then, understanding how the, that's why the astrological magic, I think, is a little bit, was a little bit of a hard sell to, it's easier to make an astrologer out of a magician than it is to make an astrological magician out of an astrologer. They just, okay. the, the magicians, here's what the magicians don't like about astrological magic. What they don't like is they want to do whatever they want whenever they want to do it. The idea right, of I've got to wait six months till till Jupiter rises in, in Sagittarius, no way. I don't want to do that. Yeah, they don't like how restrictive it is because it imposes like a lot of rules and it means there's some things that you just can't do during certain times or you have to wait a long time in order to, to do certain things. Yeah. Like, you know, Jason Miller, who I, I really like, I think he's a great magician, but we disagree. We sort of agree to disagree about timing. He'll do Jupiter stuff, and I'm like, I'm like, Jupiter's retrograde and a detriment. I'm like, what? And on the other hand, they do a really, really elaborate ritual, and that—that that I think—that's another a the two components I think are most important for you know a powerful astrological talisman are the, a good election and and you have to do a consecration ritual. Those are the, those are really the keys. Materials are there. I don't think my personal view is they're not quite as important, but mm. so if you take the timing away and just do a massive ritual, it's going to have that effect. But why not combine everything you can? Now that's sort of my, I would never just do the timing without the ritual, you know. Sure. So but, going, no, let's back go back to, to the the astrologer thing. Astrologers well, the don't like magic. The point you were making a, about natal astrology, though, in my book, was that I think Hellenistic astrology and the core of Western astrology was originally developed in a largely fate-oriented context, where the purpose of looking at the birth chart was to know your fate and know what would happen to you in your life in in the future. But that's one of the things then that Austin and I were talking about last month is that's what where the magical tradition. And especially the astrological magical tradition almost seems antithetical to that on some level because it seems to be emphasizing more the attempt to have what you might describe as free will or the ability to actualize your will to make certain things happen or push them in a certain direction if you can. And that's while it might not be completely antithetical to the idea of like fate or, or natal astrology, it seems like it's pushing in a, in a slightly different direction that's more. Uh, balancing out or on the other end of whatever the fate slash free will dynamic is. No, I think you're 100% correct. I, I think that it's just really weird that, I mean, I was once teaching a, a little traditional module for a modern astrology online course. And I asked them, I said, you know, I said, look, I have Mercury and Mars opposed to the second, you know? And I said, that makes me, I can be very aggressive in speaking. I said, also makes me great at debate. I said, I'll mm -hmm. never be a wallflower. I said, isn't that fate? And they're like, ah, they freaked out. I got reported for heresy basically to the to the teacher. But it's I like, know. let's face it, even with modern, if you have a personality, isn't that fated? I mean, if I can look at and say, well, you're a Pisces, so you're sensitive, isn't that a isn't that fated? And right. so, but the modern sort of paradigm is that the essentially the worship of the self, the ego. And the ego gets to do whatever it wants. And so, I mean, how many times have you seen a movie where they said, oh, you can change the future, like a time travel movie? It's always you can change it. You know, you mm -hmm. don't have to, the future is fun, you know, because it goes your way. That is not the way astrologers have traditionally thought about what we're doing. Like I said, I would say it's 75, 80% fate. And free will seems to me to be, even with myself, more of a, a possibility. 
You know what I mean? If I look at my behavior most of the time, I can see the what where it's coming from, and there's a, there's a definite faded quality to it. So, but you can do look you, at that. Do you think in the Picatrix though that there is an attempt and a belief that you might be able to change some aspects of your fate and and an attempt to do so in some of the rules in the Picatrix? I think that people have never liked the idea of having it everything written in stone. Mm-hmm. You know. And and you can look at it and say, well, you know, I can't predict super specifically. So there's obviously some give, even if there's fate. I mean, I can't predict it, so I don't know what's going to happen. But I think you're right. I think that the astrological magic comes more from a free will standpoint, right? But within a traditional context, so that they're mm-hmm. accepting fate, but they're saying, you know what, there's some wiggle room here, right? And I think that's what we're talking about is that I don't, I don't believe you can overthrow your chart with with magic. Right, you're going to express yourself, you know, within the confines of that natal chart, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, it's it's like, um, you know, if someone's got you know totally afflicted second house, their Jupiter's afflicted, you know, they're just unless they're coming from you know a really rich family, they're likely not to be that rich, no matter how much astrological magic you do, right? Now you can improve your situation. You can take in those cards that have been dealt to you and do the best you can with it. You can emphasize. You can get the best you can. But I think that the natal chart provides sort of the, the framework you're going to have to work in no matter what you do. I just don't see sure. that you can overthrow. You, I don't think you can change your fate in terms of that big picture stuff. But the details, I don't know how good we are at actually predicting it anyway. So it, that becomes more a matter of opinion about it. But um, sure. the, the fate- so, if, Oh, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt you. Uh, no, go ahead with your point. No, I forget. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was going to transition into a discussion. Yeah. We started going down, which is that the text, uh, the Picatrix demonstrates both positive and negative, or I don't know how to frame that, like constructive versus benefic destructive. Benefic and malefic, yeah. Definitely. Benefic versus malefic, like uses yeah. of astrological magic. Yeah, big time. Uh, where early on, it's like the first uh, talismans it introduces are relatively benign, like the one I read earlier, which is like trying to make two people fall in love with each other. But then relatively early in book one, it introduces a talisman for like destroying an enemy. And mm-hmm. this is something that that you've had some discussion about. For example, in your translation, another translation you did that I found that I really love, I don't want to say more than the Picatrix, but I, I really enjoyed is um, Astrological High Magic, De Imaginibus of Thabit Ibn Kura. Who was like a ninth century astrologer, and this is a book on um, basically rules for making certain talismans and the electional rules for doing that. But in that text and the commentary where um, John Michael Greer did the translation and you wrote commentaries on each chapter, you actually very early on are very overt about discouraging people from using magic for bad things. And at the same time, you said in that text that you think it's important not to censor the tradition. Because it was important to understand the principles of creating constructive versus destructive elections. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, here's the thing: you know, modern technology. I mean, you can get, you know, everybody can get a driver's license. You can get into an SUV and you can drive it into a crowd. You can mm. kill. You can kill twenty people easily. You can get. You can buy a, you know, a automatic weapon and kill a bunch of people. And you can, you know, there's all sorts of ways for modern technology to kill people. So sure. and it's easily accessible. This stuff is hard. Thabadim and Kura. To do those talismans or the Picatrix house-based talismans, you'd have to study for like a year, right? And learn all this stuff and then do a lot of practice and then you could make them. And even mm-hmm. then it wouldn't kill people as, as surely as running a car into them would. So part of it is that this is actually not that accessible or that easy to use, 
you know? Mm. And so a lot of the worry about it is, you know, let's face it, only a small number of people are ever going to have the expertise to be able to do it. That being said, again, I'm a Buddhist. I'm coming at this from a very devotional uh, standpoint. So I'm like, we really debated, well, do we put the malefic stuff in there? But I also believe that, you know, it needs to be, you know, put out there. I don't want to be censoring people. I want to be honest about what the text says. And it's not my place to make those decisions for people. At the same time, I said very clearly, I said, I don't think you should be doing anything to hurt people. I mean, it's just as bad taking a two by four over to the house and beam over the head with it as it is doing a curse on somebody. I see no difference ethically or morally from that. Um, and there's a tendency nowadays to be like, well, it's not really real anyway. It's, we'll just try it out, you know, and if it works, great. But if it, you know, I don't have to take any responsibility for it because it's just magic. It's just not true. The, you know, you're just as responsible for it uh, if you if you go ahead and and do it, you're, you know, physically yourself. At I mean, the did same you have time, any trepidation about putting like unleashing this stuff out there on the like early 21st century astrological and magical community, given that the text does contain some, let's say, destructive potential? I, like I said, yes, and we dealt with that by saying don't do it. But right. also, by the like I said, the recognition that only a few people could do it. Okay. Like I said, at the time I put it out there, it was like five people in the world could even have the, the expertise to be able to handle making this kind of talismans. Now that's expanded nowadays. But you know, I think that there's a lot of people doing magic You know, outside of astro astrological magic is such a tiny subset. You know, mm -hmm. the amount of people doing spells and magic and stuff like that is just, it's just exploded tremendously. And there's a lot of, you know, the Solomonic stuff can be negative. The Goetic stuff can be negative. There's people, all sorts of spells and everything like that. So I guess what I would say about it is that we really had to, de the debate was between censorship, right? Imposing our values on everybody else or saying to people, look, this is what, you know, this is what we think you should, should do it in a very specialized text. But yeah, I mean, with my students, for example, I, I, I say, don't do any malefic magic. I said, as long as you're a student of mine, I don't want you doing it. You know, you're and sort of it, under my wings. That, you say that partially for moral reasons, um, like you made the analogy, like to like hit somebody with a two by four is, is the same directly as to like use magic where the, the, the effect or the mechanism may be obscure or not clear, but the negative impact can be just as um, significant. So partially for like moral reasons, but also you've mentioned the sort of blowback and the, and the potential negative repercussions even on the person who would engage in something like that. It's bad karma. I mean, this is as easy as that. I mean, it's just like that's I mean, I my view of reality is like I said, I'm Buddhist or even the hermetic stuff is everything's connected. So you cannot escape the bad consequences of your actions, even if you do it secretly. If you do it secretly or spiritually, it's still going to have a negative blowback on you as well. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of there's both a practical and a and an ethical reason for not doing um, you know, malefic magic. It's not it's not effective. I mean, I had a, a situation where I you know, I felt like I was, you know, a problem with the government, for example. And I didn't do, you know, the get the beef tongue and stick the, you know, nails in it. And I didn't put curses. What I did is I did a serious talisman. And a serious talisman is for reconciliation with government officials. And then I mm. put it in a, a jar full of sugar, a whole hoodoo spell to sweeten them up. And I <coughs> prayed the 23rd Psalm every day for about a year. And it worked. Everything and we had a really nice, you know, everything worked out. They were they were nice and they were nice to me after that. So it took a long time. I went through this whole process, but that is my typical approach to a problem. If I'm going to actually do anything magically, which I don't do that often, usually I just let things go. I'm going to try to find a positive solution to it. 
Now, I don't rule it out entirely. Like I said, the pest control magic is, I can see how you want, that's a malefic magic you might want to do. It's malefic for the rat or for the cockroaches or whatever, or the scorpions. But I just think it's from a practical standpoint, in your life, it doesn't make sense to attack people, whether you're doing it magically and you think you can get away with it or you're doing it physically. I mean, neither of the, I don't think it's a, it's a good practical methodology as well as having ethical problems. That actually brings up, um, like this. You mentioned the scorpion. There's like a scor- uh, an election in Thabit of Ankara about for like one of the first ones is like getting rid of scorpions in mm-hmm. a certain area. But it raised an interesting like conceptual issue for me. And the way that it was doing it was basically creating an electional chart, but just making it the worst electional chart possible, and then hoping that that chart would um, not. Be applying to you, the one initiating the action, but instead it's applying to the thing that you are then making the image after. So I think the Scorpion image was like create, pick an electional chart with like Scorpio rising and create um, an image or a statue of a Scorpion and put, uh, it said like bring evil or put malefics in the first house. And so, um, you do things like, for example, you make, um, you know, the first ruler squaring or opposing the eighth ruler, or put the eighth ruler in the first house. You have the first ruler being, you know, in detriment if possible, you know, afflicted, um, that sort of stuff. Now, that's what I did for that rat election, right? And it was supposed mm-hmm. to be rats be gone, right? And the rat got killed. So, that to mm-hmm. me was a good example of, you know what? Anytime you're moving into that malefic area, you're unleashing this power, right? And so, you want to, why would you want to, like I said, you want to get rid of your boss, you want him to move and he ends up being dead or something. I mean, that's the that's the thing with this is that once you start that going, I mean, if you did a positive spell, fine, if it's more positive than I thought it was going to be, but if it's more evil than I thought it was going to be, again, I don't want to be, be messing around with that. One thing I would say though, is that we've had about 2000 years of conditioning that magic is bad. And it's amazing sure. to me how afraid people are of like the stuff I'm doing. I'm like, it's basically like, to me, like a saint or an angel. When I'm doing an invocation of these these spirits, it's very positive. But people are like, oh, they're really afraid of it. And I'm like, yet you're having plastic that has estrogenic compounds in it. You're allowing all these electromagnetic fields, right? We have, you know, coronavirus going on. I mean, the scientific stuff is definitely dangerous, but we're not worried about it. You know what I mean? That's something that we've been kind of conditioned to that this is positive. Whereas we've had 2,000 years of conditioning from the church and you know from the atheistic materialism to be afraid of anything magical. So, so <coughs> I just don't think it's that that uh, overwhelmingly effective. I mean, I think it works, but it's not like instantaneously instantaneous death or instantaneous wealth by any means. Sure, I guess I can see because there's you were referring to almost the um, not alchemical, but the theurgic like version of magic where mm-hmm. you're. Trying to create um, connections, or uh, yeah, deepen a connection, or have connections with um, higher spiritual beings, or even like celestial bodies and the spirits associated with them. And there's like that version of the magical tradition, but then there's also this other version, which is more like attempting to exert your will in order to accomplish something or get something that you're seeking. Yeah, I, I would I say that s- that's definitely magical. You know what I mean? I think you really hit the when you guys are talking about the definition of magic is getting your will. I think mm. that's exactly I would I totally agree with that. But I think also what I'm doing is just showing, look, there's a theurgic side to it as well, right? And so mm. that's an, another possibility that you can that you can follow with it. Here's what I would say. My style, the theurgic style, 
you cannot make a deal with the spirits. You cannot make them do what you want. They're kind of going to do what they want to do and they think it's in your best interest, but there's no blowback. The worst people usually, you know, complain about with my talismans is that nothing happened. Occasionally someone will come back and say nothing happened. I don't usually have people saying negative stuff happened. If you try a style that's a little more will-based and getting what you want, you maybe can get what you want, but the, you get more blowback. So it's kind mm. of a trade-off in terms of what it gets to the, like the, the more you do that, you more get into a demonic sort of thing. And the demons will apparently make deals with you and then cheat you. I mean, there's a classic story with one guy. He did a Goetic, which isn't quite a demon, but getting more rambunctious called Bune. And that's a wealth one. He asked for a specific sum of money. And he, uh, about a month later, his house burned down and he got that check for that specific amount of money. So wow. that's the, the classic kind of demonic, the mess with you, like Mephistopheles kind of stuff. Or even like thinking about, um, like, I don't know if this is true. Maybe you know, is it true that like Joseph Smith, when he was killed, was found with like a Jupiter talisman on him, the founder of Mormonism? That, yeah. I mean, that's supposedly he, um, and it's a straight, I have it have it on my website. It's a straight up right out of um, the, a book called Francis Barrett's The Magus, which is a copy of Three Books of Occult Philosophy. So it was a okay. completely straight up normal Jupiter talisman. Wasn't anything. So the, the founder of like one of the larger major religions at this point in the world, um, who founded his own religion. Basically, he had a Jupiter talisman where you know whatever he was using it for was probably like a, attempting to, I don't know, uh, increase the positive things surrounding Jupiter in his life and. Arguably, was somewhat successful at least in founding a religion, uh, even if he met an untimely demise or untimely end. He was really into different kinds of esoteric, you know, studies. I mean, it's it's very controversial because the Mormons don't want to, you know, play that up. But sure. I mean, there's a whole controversy where he was doing treasure hunting and seer stones, and he's a it's a ton of Masonic ritual in the temple ritual. I mean, he he really was very eclectic in putting together these sort of esoteric strands at the time, and then incorporating it into to you know Mormonism. So it's interesting because you know sort of like my respect for him increased when I realized how much Joseph Smith was you know knowledgeable about these esoteric stuff because it wasn't that easy to find that in you know in eighteen thirty whatever eighteen thirty or eighteen forty to find that kind of it's not like you go on the internet and find all this Jupiter talismans or something like that. But sure. um, well, and you you mentioned like. That magic has gotten a bad rap over the past thousand, two thousand years or so, which is true. But then on the other hand, I can see why, in reading some books like this and in some of the portions of it which are clearly more trying to actualize your will or, in some instances, try to like impose your will on somebody else, why that could have like um, elicited some very negative reactions from people when they see. Let's say like mag- magicians running around trying to do things like that. Even if 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 anybody believed that that was even partially um, effective, I could see why that would rub some people the wrong way. Oh, definitely, no question about that. But I, I like I said, I think people's reaction is disproportionate when you're talking about something doing like a you know, a, a, like I said, people are very worried about the stuff that I do, right? And will cross examine me about you know what we're dealing with in spirits like that, and it's like. Well, like I said, you'll people are drinking plastic bottles without even thinking about it. You know, it's mm-hmm. just one of those things. It's like the real dangers in our like driving. I mean, thirty thousand people a year in the United States drive cars. And people aren't freaking out about getting in their cars to the same level that they're worried about getting a Venus talisman for me is somehow going to have some negative impact on them. Sure. And, um, 
But you know, it's everyone needs to make these decisions for themselves. And if you feel uncomfortable about it, don't do it. That's my thing. I don't want to. I don't want to proselytize for this at all. This is very much an area that it appeals to a certain number of people. And for those people, they just find it enthralling. I always have, but a lot of people they're just not interested in, it, or other people are like, oh, they don't want to deal with that stuff. And that's, I think, that's completely legitimate. You need to follow your own heart in terms of of this stuff. And I certainly wouldn't be saying, oh, you, everyone should be jumping and doing astrological magic. Sure. Um, so one one of the other areas to transition out of that is there's a theme that keeps coming up in the Picatrix about belief and like having faith in the operation as as a necessary like. Component uh, to it working and to it being effective, or to what your desire your desires actually being brought to fruition, um, and statements that like if you don't believe or have some sort of underlying belief in it, then it won't work. And I thought that was a really interesting thing because on the one hand, I could see somebody being skeptical or or sort of um, sort of using that as a point of critique and saying that you you know it should work whether you believe in it or not and that this is a weakness somehow but then there i could also see another scenario where your genuine belief or genuine um conviction in something actually having an impact on the outcome and um i was curious what role you think that plays in terms of astrological magic i think that this i mean Picatrix never doubted the existence of the spiritual. I mean, mm. the author of that was not sitting here in an atheistic materialistic environment where he disbelieved in it, right? I mean, right. he they fully accepted that there are spiritual beings and spiritual entities and spiritual energy and everything. So, because so they are looking at it from a different perspective. A modern person is like, oh, it's all fake, right? And so we're looking out for a causal mechanism. And so mm. that causal mechanism, oh, if you believe in it, you know, affirmations, it's sort of like chaos magic. Chaos magic all comes from an individual. It's all individual power, which exists. Um, what I would say about, and, and Grip actually has a very interesting passage. And he talks about faith and belief. He says, you know, if you have a physician and you don't believe in that physician, you don't have faith in them, they're not going to be able to cure you as easily, mm. you know? And so there's that self-power that's very, very powerful. And if you don't have it, I mean, think of it if you're an athlete and you're, you're going to be in the Olympics and you're like, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose. You psych yourself out. I mean, what are right. your chances of winning if you don't have any faith in yourself at all, despite the fact that you're a world-class athlete, right? Well, and, and this even comes up in like consultations with astrologers where if you sit down with somebody who's just thinks that astrology is bogus and this is lame and they don't want to be there, like this is one of the reasons why a teacher of mine, Dennis Harness, said he doesn't do gift consultations because it's just too likely to end up in a scenario where the person just doesn't want to be there and doesn't isn't invested enough in the process to actually have a productive consultation where they're going to get much out of it. Um, so there's kind of a similar issue on some level with astrology where one's level of while while I do believe it's like an objectively occurring phenomenon that exists whether you believe in it or not, I've seen how person's perceptions and beliefs about it can alter their experience and their willingness to see the phenomenon on some level. And I don't know if that's part of what's connected here in terms of the magical tradition. I think it's both. I think that there isn't the power of the talisman is outside, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also inside. And then also the belief can either enhance that power or block it. Sure. So that's what I would say is that we're dealing with a multivariant you know, thing because you have that inner power, right? I mean, uh, you think about panacea, right? I mean, that's incredibly powerful. If you think about it, you give someone this blue pill and you cure, you know, 25% of the people ha are cured then basically. 25% of them have a, the pain goes away, even though it's a sugar pill, right? Right. 
That's mm-hmm. really powerful. Instead of saying, oh, that's bullshit, that's panacea, I'm like, that's incredibly powerful. And that's the, the, the power of belief, okay? So that is something that's additional though too. And the astrological magic is not coming from, oh, I believe in it and that's the only thing it works based on. Like there is an, there is an external causality, I think, in, at least from this perspective, that's going on. Um, mm. But whether you can access that effectively and whether you're enhancing it or blocking it, I think that your belief does come into it. Again, I think I think picture is overselling it a bit. I mean, it's like it won't absolutely work at all if you don't believe in it. Eh. I mean, I think that you're still going to have some effect. You know? Yeah. Well, I was just thought it would be interesting if it was true that your belief or lack of belief in something, if you're trying to do one of these operations, does is a factor that's a component that's playing into it at all. That's an interesting thing to be aware of in terms of how the cosmos would be working and the level of like interactivity and sort of cooperation that's involved rather than it just being a one-way sort of mechanistic like push a button get this result type thing. I think you're right. I think you really have put your finger on something that's really very very essential, which is that, you know, that that interaction is really key, right? And that you're bringing something to this and the outside circumstances bringing something to it as well. I think what I'd add to it is this is that we we tend to think of the magic like I said as transforming the outside world, right? Mm-hmm. What I'm looking for is that I have my desire and I want it to manifest in the outside world. Again, that inner transformation is very important too though. So what's going on with the talismanic work is again, you like just like you said this interactivity, you have outside force you have your belief, and then you have a transformational effect on yourself as well. So there's, mm. it's a very complex process that's going on. But I think you're absolutely. I think that's a very, very, um, you know, cogent point that you made. I think it's very important. Sure. Um, yeah, something to be aware of. Uh, let's see other things. Let's see rooting the nativity, uh, electional stuff in a in a question or a nativity. One of the points actually might be good to make is. A lot of the rituals seem to make a lot more sense, even though this is being written in like Muslim Spain in the 10th century. A lot of the rituals come from a much earlier strata of the tradition, especially through the Sabians of Haran. And it seems mm-hmm. to come from this earlier, um, like polytheistic pagan tradition where, like, what they're trying to do and, and some of the rituals and stuff almost make a lot more sense in that context. Um, versus the later sort of more monotheistic traditions where a lot of that had been removed. Keep in mind that I mean the the Haranian Sabian. I mean I don't think there's any polytheist that religion that doesn't have a, a, a view of the one. I mean if you look okay. at the actual traditional societies that have multiple spirits, right? They mm. always have a sense of unity ultimately for that. Mm. But they just disperse. Sort of like I, I analogize to say, look, if you, if why do you go to Jupiter for wealth? It's like, well, I don't need to go to the to the mayor if I want my trash picked up. I'm going to go to the Department of Public Works. You know, right? My, my conceptualization is that it's a, a unified. It's whether it's Taoist or Hermetic, however you want to look at it, it comes from the one. But there's a differentiation in terms of practical level of of working with things that you're going to work at the, with the the planet that you know that it's an interface essentially if you want to plug in at the celestial interface okay well if i want love i'm going to go for venus if i want wealth i'm going to go for jupiter right i have a quote i wrote down up from book 3 chapter 7 where it says quote unquote fundamental to all these requests is that you never seek anything from a planet unless it is attributed to its dominion very much that's exa- that's just an es- essential planetary magic you know sort of aphorism is that each of the planets has a natural rulership 
And if you're going to go on a straight-up planetary talisman, you need to get the... Now, the weird thing is with a house-based talisman, that's that's really that that's a much harder for me to get my head around, right? Because any planet could be the first ruler and the seventh ruler, like you're giving that. And it, it, it would be nice to have Venus because it's sort of like, it's like typecast, like a Clint Eastwood is in a cowboy movie, right? Mm-hmm. Venus is typecast in a love talisman, but you can have Saturn as long as he's well-dignified, right? Saturn and and the moon, for example, those are first and se- those are first and seventh pair that's possible, right? Mm-hmm. That's fine for love talisman. It's, I think of it like repertory theater. You've got seven actors, right? And they can play 12 roles. And depending on what's going on at that particular time, each of those seven planets can play the role effectively as long as they're dignified. Sure. So that's what's funky about. So when am I when am I doing when I make a house based talisman? I've been thinking about that recently. I'm like I'm kind of clear on what I think is happening with a planetary talisman. I'm trying to get mm-hmm. the natural rulership, the natural energy of that planet. I understand the personality of say say Saturn. He's like a cranky old man. He's very isolated, you know. Whereas the Sun's like a king, you know. Mm-hmm. But when I do a house based talisman, I'm like, what are we doing here? So that's a much more difficult thing to conceptualize. Um, so, so that's what I would say about it is that definitely I have a better handle on the planetary talisman than what's going on with a house-based talisman. Nevertheless, right, I'm just like you attracted to Thabadim and Kora and attracted to Imaginibus. And those house-based talismans really are the height of astrological magic. They're the hardest to do. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they might have a, t- a chart that has 10, 15 factors that you have to find. So some of right. the most demanding talismans I've ever done have been house-based talismans. And people have been successful with them. People have been happy with those talismans. So there's a still a lot more to be done. That's what I would say. We have not, we've only kind of started the revival. We're starting to got the skeleton. We're starting to kind of put the flesh back on. And that's what's kind of exciting about working now. You've got people like Austin Kopic, you've got um, Cliff Lowe, Alexander Cummings, um, Arthur um, Lip Bonewitz. These are all people that are that are really doing exciting work, you know, and kind of forging their own path. And I have a particular methodology, like I said, this devotional practice. That's just one way. There's a lot of different ways for people to do this. It's a very exciting time, I think, to be involved in astrological magic. So it's been really, um, has you know, that been heart- heartening to you because going from 15, 20 years ago, literally being the only guy doing it, to suddenly seeing all of these younger kids running around doing astrological magic, has that been heartening for you? Oh, I love it. I mean, that's kind of what my, I felt like my my role is that when you look back and say Chris Warnock, he's like, okay, he revived astrological magic. But what's the point if no one else took up the banner? You right. know, if it had been just me and it had been this this solitary thing, it really would have been point. I mean, I feel like I have a big mirror and it has, it it's, a, it's a talisman and it has Picatrix on it. And it's right in the center of my planetary altar. And I've really felt like my job has been serving Picatrix and, you know, and getting it translated. It's, it, I mean, it manifested through me, you know, I can't mm. really say I did it. And I, I felt like that was my job, you know, that I was supposed to get it out there and now everyone else can kind of, t- kind of run with it. And mm. I think that's a really exciting, you know, uh, development that's going on. And, you know, Austin, like I said, Austin has just been amazing in terms of like the UAC stuff. I mean, I couldn't even get to, they wouldn't even invite me to UAC after the first time I went. I, I applied and they said, no, we don't need you. We don't want you anymore. And okay. I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, and it was like, you know, I kind of withdrew a little bit. Now recently, you know, Cliff Lowe came to me and said, you know, you've got to get out more. And I said, you know what? That's part of why I contacted you, Chris, and said, hey, let's do this podcast. Because I said, you know what? I need to just be more publicly available and and to to put it out there because the 20 years of experience has been useful. 
like I said, I wouldn't want to come and say it's the only way or the best way, but it is kind of interesting to see how I've developed and the stuff that I've been doing. And um, and also, I kind of like to to let people know, like what you just what you've been talking about, the process of the Picatrix translations. People aren't really aware of that, so I think mm-hmm. it's really nice. I mean, what you're doing is you really kind of it's almost like an archive. I mean, you're you're systematically going through all these different areas, and it's basically the definitive word on these areas as you go through it. So I'm I'm really proud of the fact that we're able to do this and kind of get it down um, on this podcast because this is it. You know, this is this is the definitive word. Yeah, I'm glad we could document some of this history because it really is like history in the making that you were involved with directly over the past 20 years and now we can already see it changing and shaping the course of the astrological community as a result in a relatively short span of time. I mean, it's 2020 now, which sounds weird to say, but just seeing the dramatic change just in the past 5 years has been really remarkable. Yeah, I think it's kind of it's kind of taken off. What's happened is people are particularly the younger astrologers because the the baby boomers are like, oh no, they sort of want to. I always get the sense with modern astrologers that they want to wear turtlenecks and sit in their office and get insurance reimbursements. That's kind of like their whole. And science will eventually accept them. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's not happening. Whereas the younger astrologers are like, you know, let's try this stuff out. Let's go for it. I mean, that was always mm-hmm. kind of my thing. I'm like, wow, look at this. St- look at this cool stuff. Agrippa, Picatrix. Let's let's do it. And sure. everyone's like, "Oh no, don't do that! I don't want to do it." I'm like, "Hey, let's try it," you know. And that's really that spirit is kind of what's you know kind of exciting about what people have been doing, and also the fact that it just sort of like I said, it's exploded. I mean, I look at you know Cliff's; um, he's got the Stellar Sorcery Group, and it's like incredible number of people on it. People are very excited about it, sharing the things they're doing. I don't always agree with everybody, but we have a beautiful you know what's what's cool about that group is that there's a sort of agreement to disagree. Mm-hmm. We don't have a lot of sophomoric arguments or flame wars or everything. There's a sort of level of respect that's really nice to see. And I think that's really kind of exciting too with the astrological community is just to have mutual respect, you know, and acknowledge that my way isn't the only way. I mean, that's probably what I have to offer right now for everybody is to say, look, if you think that your way is the only way, it's the only way for you, right? But there, we need to tolerate other people's sort of variations within the tradition, and, and realize how rich the tradition we have by having some differences like that. And right. um, you know, it's so the just, the that was a Facebook group, the Stellar Sorcery group yeah, that you right. mentioned. Okay, mm-hmm. and then uh, what you're saying right now brings up a point which is interesting, which is it seems like you for a while in the like 2000s you were doing your own thing, and you were having to. In some ways, like defend your approach and maybe be a bit more aggressive sometimes about defending your approach as a traditional astrologer, as somebody that was doing astrological magic. But in some ways, it seems like you've mellowed out a lot over the past decade or two. (laughs) Partly it's my personal, but personal mellow. I mean, for somebody whose Mars is directly opposite to Mercury, I'm I'm Mm -hmm. doing pretty well. You know, that's, right. that that tends to be a little bit too aggressive. Here's what I would say about that. First of all, what when I started, that? I mean, was this well, a sudden thing or? I just think that, you know, partly a couple, let me give a couple things. First of all, when I started out, even doing traditional astrology at all, you had to defend because people right. would email me very indignant. It's like, why aren't you using Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto? How dare you not have Scorpio ruled by Pluto? People are well, very well, indignant about that, and not even that, not even just that, but also, and to respect to him because he recently passed away, Noel Till, and he did a lot for the modern astrological community and was a, a great proponent of modern astrology and a certain version of it. And I have respect for him, and it's uh, too bad that he passed away. But he, one of the things that he said, I had a conversation with him once where he was the guy that led to a, a ban 
where Llewellyn would not let astrologers use the terms benefic and malefic, and that was like one of his personal like hobby horses in astrology was making sure that astrologers did not use that terminology anymore because they felt that it was harmful to clients or harmful in a psychological setting or what have you. But that's like part of the context in the early 2000s when you come into the community doing traditional astrology that you had to come up against was things as simple as that, like a ban on using terms like benefic and malefic. I mean, they say you can't predict. I would have people say to me, making a prediction is unethical. I'm like, what have astrologers been doing for the past thousand years other than making predictions? What do we sure. do? What's our what's our point other than predict? Even a psychological reading is a prediction. Oh no, blah, blah, blah. So that was that's part of it was that, you know, when you're all by yourself and then you can't even do your most basic stuff. And then the other thing I would say is that the um, you know, I have spent the astrology is one part of sort of a spiritual quest that I've been on. And another part of that was the heavy involvement with uh, with Buddhism and particularly Zen Buddhism, and so I spent a lot. I spent years doing tons of meditation. You know, every day until to this day, I meditate every single day. I sit, mm. you know, I sit zazen, and um, and then also I have been privileged to. Um, you know, I have a teacher in called the non dual tradition, which is kind of coming out of Advaita and Zen, but it's a modern sort of spiritual tradition. And with him, I was able to have what, what's essentially called a, a Kensho or Satori experience, which is an experience of your true nature. And so that sort of spiritual awakening uh, had a really strong effect on me as well. You know, so okay. the mellowing out is just part of that. You know, um, essentially, what's happening is the Chris character, the Chris ego self, the Chris idealization is starting to fade out. Mm -hmm. You know, and what we take to be ourself, to be an I. Is not really real, you know. It's just sort of this sort of um, it's thoughts and conditioning and karma and everything. And it's a bit like you think of a cartoon. You've got a bunch of still pictures, and you just run them together. There's a mm -hmm. there's an illusion of continuity. So with the idea of a self, I mean that's the most central. When you say that to people, like you're nuts. I mean, there can't be anything more central to people's view of themselves than that I exist. But that's one of the central teachings of Buddhism is that there is no self, there is no I. And that's really hard for people to deal with. Now, on psychedelics, you can have that experience. And you can also have that experience, like I said, when this Kensho or Satori experience. And mm -hmm. so this is a manifestation, though, of sort of spiritual progress. And so if if you're saying I'm mellowed out, I love it. I mean, like I said, I'll take that as a gold star on my forehead. Sure. Um, well, yeah, and just like the, the elder statesmen of the astrological magic community and a lot of younger people running around. One of the things that's interesting that's been a recurring theme in this interview today is your that it might be interesting for people to hear, especially that are just getting into astrological magic or are part of that zeitgeist recently, is you seem much more reserved or restrained about saying that you can use astrological magic to get whatever you want or just, just like completely impose your will in any way possible and that you might feel like there's much more restrictions on what's possible through it than than other than some people might might claim. Well, here's the deal. I mean, I've had 20 years of experience with this stuff. Mm. I've seen what can happen. I mean, and I I've been a professional astrologer for like I said for 22 years. And I attribute I mean all my income, like I said, it's all you know, I'm a lawyer, but that's just for fun. Mm. You know, people think that's bizarre, but I just that's my service to the community. The astrology is where my where I made my living. I attribute a lot of that success to doing this astrological magic. You know, these repeated, you know, to doing making talismans and having this strong relationship. And a lot of my success, I think, comes from that. But I have a very 
you know, clear idea that, you know what, you know, because again, when people um, will write to me about stuff, I'll say, look, a lot of people are happy. Some people are unhappy, you know, and some people will come back and say nothing happened. I'm like, well, if you want to buy a talisman, you just have to realize that. So a lot of it is what I'm trying to do is reduce people's expectations. You know, they need to have a realistic understanding of what's possible. So you're in a sense, taking a little bit of a leap in the dark. You know, a I mean, lot of how much, had- how much are you rooting the talismans at all when you're making a talisman for somebody versus how much is it just like a talisman that is a planetary talisman that has a good electional chart for like that's that all planet? I do. That's I all you do. Make, okay. I can't make talismans for individual people. I mean, sure. just as a practical matter, a couple things about that. First of all, when we're doing casting, I mean, I have a guy in Pakistan who's a student of mine who does it for me. I mean, hmm. I mean, I have a schedule. This, for example, I looked out for the 2020, and I have a schedule. And I try to do like one one a month, so he's not getting okay. too overworked. So, mm. for example, we have not been able to make Mercury talismans for a year. Okay. All of 20, not all of 2019, there wasn't a single second that was up to my standard for Mercury. Mm. I couldn't okay. get Mercury, you know, dignified by sign, rising planetary hour, unafflicted. Couldn't do it. Okay. So, like, we don't do it. Doesn't happen. Right. So there's sure. one, I think there's one election that I found in 2020, you know, it's an hour. So that's our window. So he'll mm-hmm. make 20 or 30, right? And I'll store him up. Sure. So I can't, there's no way. The thing is, if you're going to do natal stuff, so if you, if you think about a talisman, you got four or five factors, and then you want to put in natal factors, you got another four or five, fa- you're going to go nuts. Right. You're not going to be able to do a talisman that's going to be both good as an election and good as a natal chart. Yeah, it seems like that's somewhat on the customer or on some level to make sure that the talisman chart matches their own natal chart to some extent and would be a good match for them. Well, what I do is here's what I have a very idiosyncratic method. And again, I'm coming from a devotional approach. So what I do is I look at your birth chart and I only really need the date because the planets don't move enough. But if you know, obviously if you have the time and location, that's great. But what I'm looking at is the essential dignity of the planet. Mm-hmm. So if for example, you have a strong sun. To me, that says, look, you have a pre-existing good relationship with the sun. If you have sun in Aries, I'm like, wow, you know, sun talismans are going to be good for you because you already have a good relationship with the sun. If the planet is peregrine, I'm like, okay, that's all right. If it's in detriment or fall or retrograde or combust, I'm like, you know what? It looks like you have a kind of a negative relationship with the planet and maybe you don't want to do a planetary talisman because my experience is they're very unpredictable. People can get a good result or they can have a negative result. And so a couple of times students of mine have actually made talismans or bought talismans that were afflicted in their chart. They had a tough time, but they said, oh, it was useful for spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. Most customers don't want to have a difficult time and useful spiritual growth. They want positive effect. So that's why ever- I say to them, do the, don't do the afflicted plants in your chart. Have you ever had a negative um, example in your own life of doing a talisman that was like a good planetary talisman, but it didn't hit your chart in a very good way and sort of like learning from that? I'll give you two examples that of, of things that I've done. First of all, uh, I have Mars is afflicted. Mars okay. is retrograde in the sixth, right? Do you and share your data, data, by the way? No, but I, okay. I mean, I'll say That's stuff fine. like I have Sun Pisces or you know Aquarius rising, but I don't give the exact time for astrological okay. magic reasons. So, let's, so nobody let's come can back do my to chart because I actually wanted to talk about that. So yeah, let's we circle, can talk about circle that. back to but that. But anyhow, okay. uh, the two examples. The first example is I thought, you know what? I'll make a Jupiter talisman, just Jupiter day and hour, but Jupiter in detriment and retrograde. Okay. I made it and I started losing money. Incredible. It was just ridiculous. I start, I got this 1099. I had my student loans were forgiven, right? I made a deal and paid them off. I got mm. a 1099 like a day later, $10,000 in additional income. 
So I had wow. this huge tax bill. And then I had something, I mean, I was like, oh God. So I had to deconsecrate the talisman. So that was an interesting example of if you make a talisman when the planet's afflicted, it has a negative effect. Okay. The other, and the then other you, by deconsecrate it, you mean you had to kind of remove the energy from it or destroy yeah. the talisman in an acceptable way in order to remove that from yeah, your life. Exactly. What I did was I just did a consecration. I said, you know, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's enough. <laughs> you can sure. leave now. That was sort yeah. of that was sort of my tone. I'm not like, you know, I don't want to be rude, but I'm like, you know what? This is just not working for me. Um the, So it's the like one, a breakup. You had a Yeah, a it's a breakup. Break. Good breakup right. with a planet. Sure. So it's not uh, you, it's me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because you don't want them pissed off at you. I mean, that's bad enough, you know. You don't want them to be angry at you. So and and so um with the the other one I have is a Mars talisman. So my Mars is afflicted. I got a Mars talisman, put it on, and about an hour later got a, like a mild migraine. And mm. Mars rules migraines. So that okay. that was an example to me of like now I had somebody once who bought a Jupiter talisman and he's like, Oh, it's great. The day I got it, I got a new job. I was so happy. I said, Let's look at look at your chart. He had Jupiter and Capricorn, which is in fall. Mm. So it's not like if you get a talisman that's afflicted in your chart, it's a death sentence or something like that. It's mm. just that they're always variable and there's now here's the other thing. That's just Chris Warnock's weird idiosyncratic method. Because mm -hmm. there's other people out there that say, you know what? If a planet's afflicted in your chart, you should get the talisman of that chart. Right. There's some people that are trying to like strengthen placements yeah, sure. somehow in their chart. That's there's that's logical, right? I don't think that's irrational at all. What what I can't do though is people will call me up and say, This is what I should do, right, Chris? I'm like, no, that's not my method. And they'll say, Well, could you sign off on my method? And I'm like, no. <laughs> that, mm -hmm. that, that I don't do. But nevertheless, I don't think that's irrational. You know what I mean? I'm not going to say that my way is the only way. With mm -hmm. that one, but that's just my experience with it. And so, like I said, the other there's a there's a real strand that comes from Vedic astrology that they call, talk about remediation. Right. So what they'll tend to do is the traditional Western method seems to have been look if you said you go to astrology and you say look I'm 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 poverty stricken he said you know what I'm going to get you a wealth talisman, and then maybe they would look at your chart if you had it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very goal oriented, right? Whereas the Vedic they're like okay well look at your chart and Mars is afflicting you so let's hit Mars. So that's they tend to be more focused on the planets in the chart and natal, 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 which appeals to modern people because they're all natal, natal, natal anyway. Yeah, so, that was actually a question I had. Is there's a lot of Indian influence in the Picatrix, and we see things like the nakshatras or the mansions of the moon coming in as right. a practical component. Some stuff with the the triplicity version of the Deccan rulers uh, coming from the Indian tradition, and I wondered how much of some of this electional or magical material was coming from portions of the Indian tradition where they may have already had some of those remedial measure type um, tendencies by that point? I don't know about Picatrix, but for myself, one of my favorite things to do is planetary charity. So if you mm -hmm. have a planet that's afflicted in your chart like Saturn, you would do planetary charity to Saturn. So if you're in India, I suppose you could go to a temple of Saturn, but we don't have temples of Saturn. What I tell people to do is I say, you know, make a vow to Saturn, invoke him on his day and hour and tell him you're going to do Saturn charity and make a vow to do it Whatever the just different numbers for planets, whatever the not three times or nine times, whatever whatever it would be, and then you go. The, Saturn is easy because you just go homeless people. You just give a donate. You just give right, their children of Saturn, mm -hmm. and you just make sure you do it. You know when to do it on planetary hours, Saturn, um, and the day if possible, and then don't break the vow. And that's a good way because you don't. The talisman is such a concentrated form of the energy of the planet. In my experience, that's why you might get negative effects. Whereas the charity, mm -hmm. that's pretty. It's you know you're not going to have blowback from doing planetary charity. 
And it, I okay. think, again, the conceptual concept is, well, it's a person, you're having a relationship with them and you're trying to, you know, you're not getting along with them. So you're going to do this to make them feel better about you. So that's sure. kind of the conceptual, as opposed to like a mechanical where you're like, well, it's a battery and you're charging with energy. And that's, that's fine too. Yeah. It's just going back to that old, either polytheistic tradition or that old tradition of seeing the universe or celestial bodies as ensouled in some ways in like the platonic tradition. Um, where they're not just inanimate objects that are floating around or rocks in the sky, but they're um, intelligences or, or have consciousness in some way. Yeah. I mean, the Sabian stuff was my, probably my most favorite part of the Picatrix is those Haranian Sabian invocations mm -hmm. in book three, chapter seven. You know, And that looks like it really came from the Haranian the Sabians. Haran is in the sort of um, southwest corner, southwest, yeah, whatever, of, of, of Turkey. And it was mm -hmm. ancient city, and um, they looked like they had pagan, you know, all the way along. They had pagan under the Christians, and they stayed pagan under the under the Muslims too. And they said, "We're a people of the book, because our prophet is Hermes Trismegistus, and our book mm -hmm. is the Corpus Hermeticum." And so they were able to 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 have special status as a, a people of the book under the Muslim occupation. But they appeared to have have a very astral based religion, and then have adapted that Hermes Trismegistus and the Hermetic philosophy kind of into it. And that's why I love those Haranian Sab because those were taken and used for magical purposes. But you can mm -hmm. originally see that they're 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 spiritual, they're religious, you know, they're astral, they're uh, in that deep embedded astral kind of religion. Um, so that's kind of my favorite. I like to use those, um, you know, for my planetary invocations. That's you know, and I have an adaptation of those that's much shorter than those that I use for my daily stuff too. I'm trying so. to find that again. So you said it was like three seven. Yeah, book three, chapter seven. I think I highlighted some of those um, because there were, you're, you're right. There are ones for different planets, and the Haranians had like different temples dedi dedicated to individual planets for doing some of these like planetary rituals. Yeah, it's cool. It's like 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 I said, if you want to go to to India today, you can go to a planet of you can go to a temple of Jupiter. They definitely have Jupiter temples, and right. even all the other planets too. I mean, that's the cool thing about Buddhism too, because in the Buddhist tradition, and um, Jeffrey Kotick is great. He's a he's really really very done a lot of really amazing work. Um, but one of the things that was cool for me as a Buddhist was to go to Japan and realize that they already had astrological magic integrated into Buddhism, because they mm -hmm. look at the planets as being like a diva, like a god. So you have the the Buddhas at the highest and the Bodhisattvas, and then the divas are kind of at a lower level sort of spiritual being. And mm -hmm. so, for example, Shingon, I was initiated. It's the Japanese tantric school of Buddhism, they have these mandalas. And one of the mandalas, it's got like a hundred different spiritual beings in it. And up at the top, you know, kind of on the edge there, they've got all the planets. So they're okay. already kind of integrated into it. The other thing that Jeffrey uh, Kotick pointed, uh, figured out from his research was that there was a flourishing school of Western astrology, mostly sort of Vedic and Persian in uh, China and Japan until about the 12th and 13th century. So in addition yeah. to Chinese astrology, they were doing the the sort of you know Western style astrology as a school in Japan uh, and China. So that was really kind of interesting as well. Yeah, Jeffrey was on the show a year year and a half ago, and we talked about his uh, PhD dissertation about the transmission of like Hellenistic astrology basically to to China and Japan through a text that looked like Dorotheus, yeah. which which is interesting because yeah, Dorotheus also shows up in the Picatrix and seems to be one of the influences in terms of some of the electional technique. Yeah. I, I, it's really interesting if you think about it. You know, We've got 
we'll have these periods, you know, it's the hermetic revivals, you know, so to speak. And, you know, we're having one now. We had one back in the Renaissance, you know, and then again, you know, back to Picatrix, you know, there's, it's also a period where there's an incredible amount of revival when it was translated into English and then also in the 10th century. But, you know, though, when, whenever this hermetic stuff becomes interesting, astrology, alchemy, magic, and the underlying philosophies, whether it's hermetic or neoplatonic, it causes a cultural ferment. You know, this idea of the one, everything being connected to the one, you know, that is, it excites people. You know, you look at the incredible, one of the reasons I like Renaissance astrology is because of the Renaissance. I mean, the inc it's an incredible period of, of cultural uh, beauty and poetry and literature and art and everything like that. And so it's, I think that magic and astrology plays its role in that. And um, so that's why it's exciting to be doing this stuff now. You know, it's yeah. a fun period to be an astrologer. Yeah, it seems like the great the periods where astrology really flourishes is always when there's a revival of the older traditions that are synthesized with the newer ones and that diversity is part of what leads to a new like epoch in each new era of astrology is the um the diversity suddenly and then having all these different ideas melding together and eventually creating a new synthesis and certainly the Picatrix is a great example of that because he draws on so many different sources and he doesn't like fully synthesize everything, but just by reading all of them together, it probably did create a new synthesis that then when later generations of astrologers came across the book, they naturally synthesized themselves in some ways in their heads. Yeah. I, and I think that's what's cool about now too. The only thing I would say to people is that you want to get deep into it. You know, I had a teacher that said to me, you can't dig a well with a bunch of shallow holes. Mm. So I think that takes a certain level of mastery. And at that level though, then there's a natural tendency to do your own idiosyncratic technique and then also possibly, like you said, the synthesis. And I think that's what's happening now too. I mean, we have an incredible amount of stuff being translated. We have an incredible number of people working and practicing in these areas. And we are starting to have this, um, you know, a truth is not a superficial synthesis, which is what you can get with a new age sort of perspective, but we're having a really deep synthesis of things. And um, mm -hmm. for example, I do a, I call it a traditional psychological reading. So what I'll do is I'll, it's very intuitive. So it's very much like a modern psychological reading. But what I'm doing is when I'm looking at someone's chart, I'm also adding in essential dignities and house placement and aspects. And so mm -hmm. I do much more of a shadow, you know, in, in, as well as the, so you can see the positive and the negative. So mm -hmm. to me, the people's personalities are incredibly evident in their charts. So it's, it's definitely psychological, which is a little bit of a, a difference from a traditional, typical traditional natal reading. At the same time, it's adding a lot of depth into it because a modern reading doesn't have that, you know, the the, the dark side as much. You know, you sure. don't have the access to those techniques, so they don't have that level of, of, um, you know, knowledge that you're able to get as a traditional astrologer. So I definitely wouldn't want to. It's funny because I know that, for example, John Frawley had a whole bunch of. I don't know if he believes this anymore, but he started off really lambasting modern astrology. I don't. I don't want to be like that. You know, I want to give credit where credit's due, and. Mm. Um, because otherwise, I mean, I'm in a weak position. If I don't give everyone else the right to think, then I'm going to be giving it up myself. And since I'm in the minority all the time, I'm going to lose my own. I'm losing my own ability to think what I want. So it's a sure. little bit self-preservation, but it's a little bit of that mellowing and recognition that you know what, there is always a certain amount of wheat mixed in with the chaff. No matter what you're dealing with, you can usually look through that and say, you know what, that's actually kind of useful. But when mm -hmm. I look at traditional astrology, whether it's Hellenistic or medieval Renaissance, whatever you're doing, there's so much content to it. I and mean, that's what I always really love about it. It's like the incredible level of technique 
and the incredible tradition that's built up. And we're, we're, you know, we can stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, I don't have to be like reinventing the wheel or coming up with my own system. I can step mm-hmm. in and be part of this long tradition. Um, and that's, that's really an, an, an honor for me able to do that. Cause if I look at like my website or my books, it's 99% from the sources. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not inventing anything. I mean, I've done one thing. I think I've done one thing, which is Fomalhaut. And Fomalhaut is a fixed star. There's supposedly four watcher stars with associated with different archangels. I'm not exactly sure where that comes from, but I like it. And mm-hmm. um, But Fomalhaut is not in our list of 15 fixed stars. But mm-hmm. I it's conjunct a really significant planet in my chart. And um, I've just felt like I had an affinity to it. So I did a divination and got a positive um, divination for it. So I said, okay, I'm going to do a fixed star for it. So I kind of mm-hmm. manifested both an image and a sigil for it. And I did the mm-hmm. talisman. So that in 22 years is my only innovation. You did That's a sigil I, for the fixed star for Yeah, Fomalhaut. Yeah. You created yeah. one. Yeah, it looks kind of like a fish. Okay. Because it's a southern fish, right? It's a mouth. And, so the sigil looks kind of like a, I don't know, it's hard, almost like automatic writing. Mm-hmm. You know, the process was interesting. It's like, it's hard for me to say that I created it. it I feel much more like it manifested through me. Sure. Know? And you so- mentioned- uh, you yeah, mentioned your birth chart, which brings me back to the <laughs> earlier question where I had always heard rumors of certain like astrologers that didn't like sharing their birth charts. And it tended to sometimes it was just astrologers that had like turned out would have Scorpio rising and they were more private or secretive about sharing personal data, feeling like that was more sensitive than other astrologers who were sometimes like literally like walking around with like a picture of their chart on their shirt. Um, but I would see an uptick on not just the Scorpio risings, but also sometimes the astrologers that had some interest in astrological magic who didn't share their chart, and it, that turned out to be for magical re- reasons. And now that I've read the Picatrix, as well as um, Thabadib and Kura, I sort of understand now more where some of those practitioners are coming from because there are specific rules in there for using a person's natal chart or knowledge of the natal chart. Um, against them potentially, where there's some like magical astrological magic operations where you incorporate that in order to make a talisman that's tied into that person's chart in order to get whatever you want out of them or what have you. Yeah. Essentially, what we're talking about is that we need to have a way to tie. I mean, for example, just like a horary chart, right? How does a horary chart take that universal, you know, um, figure of the heavens and tie it to a particular question, right? Because mm. the timing in, in a, a strongly emotional question that you ask, that timing, boom, that's that ties it right. A natal chart, it's the time of your birth. So each of these things has a link. So with magic, we need links as well. Like for example, the classic ones are like fingernails and hair, right? Like a voodoo, like they call it voodoo, but it's actually standard European magic. Um, Where and- if you're doing a spell again with or related to somebody, you want like a piece of them in order to incorporate that into what you're doing and that will personalize it more? Yeah, it connects to them, right? Okay. Because if you think about it, it used to be connected to them, so it continues to have a spiritual connection. Mm-hmm. It was So the other way to do it is their signature, right? Or a picture of the person, mm-hmm. right? Or the degree of their rising. So that's okay. that's what Thabit likes to use is he'll say make in the likeness of the person and then use the degree of their, you know, use the degree of the rising. So that's why I've never given out my chart. Never. My entire career, I've never ever publicly made my chart available to me. Now I can say, you know, I can I'll say stuff like I said. Well, you know, I have I have Sun in Pisces and I have, you know, Aquarius rise. I'm basically a split between Pisces and Aquarius, 
I mean, I have mm. a bunch of planets in Aquarius and a bunch of planets and a couple of planets in Pisces. So that's kind of, once you know that, then you can get a better sense of, I mean, that's a weird mix. So you do that as a protective measure though, mm-hmm. against other potential astrological magicians who you worry could use that against you in some way? You know, the other reason is because I hate being psychoanalyzed by um, modern astrologers. They would always do that sure. to be like, oh, it's such and such and such. And I'm like, you know what? I'm more than just like your facile, you know, flip answers. And like, I didn't like that. You know? Yeah, some people so that, don't like to. Reason. Some astrologers worry about people making presumptions about them just based on their birth chart, based on whatever astrological tradition they're coming from, and that being annoying before actual or like circumventing the process of like actually getting to know the person. It's more just like you know, it's like a psychologist could do that to you. Like if they like, oh, I know all about you. You're such and such. You know, mm. so it's just like it was my crankiness at the time. So the combination of crankiness and um. And um, and being cautious about my, you know, for example, internet stuff. I mean, I've always, through 22 years, been very cautious about what I put out on the internet. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no pictures of me drunken on Facebook or whatever like that. You know what I mean? I okay. always, even from like 2000, I recognize that this stuff is public, and everything sure. you put out there is public, and everyone's going to see it. So that's just a that's part of maybe an Aquarian quality, or that maybe it's Saturn, Saturn and Aquarius, or something like that. But I'm just a lot more cautious about how. My my public, you know, persona or whatever. So sure. I think that may be part I, of that. I guess the question was like Austin and I were debating. Then is that a general recommendation or how strong of a prohibition is that or should that be? <laughs> and should that create like a general panic about people being scared about sharing their birth chart or is it really not that big of a deal? Like Austin, one of the counterpoints Austin made was that. There's lots of other ways to like if somebody's going to do magic against you to tie in you to whatever magical operation they're doing, and not having your birth chart is uh, not going to be a major impediment. So that it's almost not as much of a big deal to worry about for that reason. What, what um, I would analogize it to is I don't know if you've ever heard of the Ursi trilogy, Ursula Le Guin. It's it's sort of fantasy. In that, there the magicians all their purpose is to they need the true name of something in order to affect it, right? So if they don't mm-hmm. know the true name of something, they can't do any magic. So okay. for a for a mage, you definitely don't want to let anyone know your true name, you know, because then that would ha- be in their power. But for everybody else, it's really not. It's, I mean, in the book, you don't let people know your name. But I mean, basically, what I would say about the chart thing is that, like, unless you actually think you're going to be a target of astrological magic, right? And mm-hmm. how many people in the world can do it now? Like a couple hundred people, right? Then you probably don't need to worry about it. You know. Sure. And so, and I think Austin's quite right that there's plenty of other ways. They can use your picture, they can use the signature, they can get your toenails or whatever, but they can do it. So I wouldn't be panicking about letting it out. I think it's more like, I mean, my wife laughed at me once. She said, you know, when I, I was in from law school to my job, I had a two week gap and I went out and got health insurance for that two weeks. You know, I'm just a very methodical, careful person about stuff like that. So sure. that's, unless you're a, a similar Saturn Aquarius rising person like me, you probably wouldn't be too worried about letting that information out of there. And again, if you're not an astrological magician, you know, or worried about that stuff, then you don't need to. I mean, I'm in a milieu where people might do that. You know what I mean? It's possible that someone might get jealous of me or something like that, or want to take a zap at me. So I'm like, okay, I just out of cautions for caution's sake. Um, I, I know Zoller just- let his his out. I've seen his chart, you know, and he was into yeah. astrological magic to a certain extent. So sure. I guess I just wonder with the recent rise in popularity of astrology, if 
uh, one of my worries is if people suddenly start becoming more paranoid about that or more are holding back versus the earlier tendency at like astrology conferences to like put your big three, your sun, moon, and rising on your your name tag or whatever. Well, um, I don't mind letting people know that. I mean, I, like I said, I'm Aquarius rising, sun, Pisces, moon, Aquarius. Okay. You know what I mean? I, I don't because mm. I think it's interesting because for people know about astrology, if I tell them that information, then it's useful for the placing me. You know what I mean? Sure. I don't mind that. But um I'm gonna like, just a side note, but I'm an Aquarius rising with Aquarius moon as well. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well we have, you know, it's funny in talking to you because I can just see how we're on the same wavelength in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Mm. It's just like because with astrologers, you just don't have this intense scholarly interest in knowledge. You know, I mean, both mm -hmm. of us are sitting there spouting off all this stuff, right? But I don't have conversations with people that have that level of knowledge, you know, about the subject. You know, it's mm -hmm. just this is not. I mean, it's not that's you know, to be an astrologer takes it's a lot more intensive in terms of the technique, right? But to the level that we're at, and I don't see that very often, you know. And that Aquarian Moon stuff—that's an interesting placement for the Moon too, don't you think? You know, the yeah. moon Aquarius is very, I think it's very intuitive. I think it's very appropriate for astrologers. You mm. know, one of the signatures that I think of astrologers is it's not unusual to have, or any fortune tellers have an angular moon or a, or a dignified moon because of that intuition. I was going mm. to Japan and doing these little mini readings for, um, and the Japanese, they do have a lot of fortune telling. It's much more acceptable. And mm. it's amazing how many of those people had prominent moons. You know, interesting, and, and a Mercury too, and strong Mercury is also a, a signature. But and and then you have people that don't fit it at all. That's what's funny about it is that you'll have someone who's a great astrologer and they have none of that stuff at all. Sure. So it's it's just interesting how that signature, like like Mercury. I'll just this is an aside. I've noticed that everyone I've ever seen who has a strong Mercury is intelligent, but people mm. with afflicted Mercury are intelligent too. Mm -hmm. So. Just one of those things of being careful of making any kind of you know you know hundred percent statements about any any one indication. Sure, you know? definitely. Yeah, that is a, always a risk in astrology. All right. Well, I think we're reaching the end of that. We're at like two hours and twenty minutes. We might want to wrap it up. And I'm trying to think of a way to not summarize, but maybe bring things full circle in terms of the Picatrix and what its significance is in not just the history of astrology, but maybe in our time. Right now, as people are are picking it up and reading it, what what's your overall feeling about it? You know, it's interesting. My astrological magic course that I recently upgraded, you know, really is, you know, the whole course is say, okay, how do I want to use Picatrix? Take the course. I mean, it's like mm. it takes at fourteen lessons. You know, it probably takes you about a year to get through that course, mm. and and that, but that's really what's necessary for to actually use Picatrix. You know, I mean, if you already have traditional astrology, you can you don't need to do that. But if you're starting from scratch. You need a lot to get up to speed to use it, and it and it's interesting thing about Picatrix is it says you know this is for the sage you know that and it's deliberately difficult because you don't want to have people have access to it you know easily you know and also the finding of it making it hard to find you're going to give more value to it you know that process of getting through there is very valuable. Yeah, I mean the author repeatedly swears the reader to secrecy and. Uh, to keep the teaching secret, and it's part of, supposed to be part of an occult tradition. D did you like? It sort of reminded me of how Vadius Valens does the same thing, like three different times, where he makes the reader swear an oath to keep his teaching secret and not to share them with the unlearned and uninitiated. And that led me to some like actual trepidation at different points when I was in the process of writing my book and wondering, like, is this okay? What I'm doing? Should I be worried about this curse or oath at all? 
Um, did you have any similar reservations in like releasing the Picatrix publicly? Here's what I would say. I think the Picatrix is what's what I would call an arcana. Okay. Mm. And an arcana is something that it publicly appears, but it conceals itself. You know what mm. I mean? The true depths of Picatrix, I'm 20 years later and I'll pick it up and go, oh, wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't think about that. You know, this is a book that has incredible depth to it. And even just doing the recipes in it, it takes so much preparation and so much effort and so much time. I, die, you know, I think there's very few people that would be willing to do that for a negative purpose, really. You know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. hopefully, again, with my students, hopefully the energy and effort it takes to get through that is going to be part of a spiritual seeking. And they're going to say, you know what? I'm not going to do it for malefic purposes. But nevertheless, I think Picatrix is sort of emblematic of you know, the deeper spiritual and philosophical depth that astrology points to. And if we look at that as merely a way to get what I want, or you know, how can I predict what I want to get, then you're really missing out on some of the deeper implications of it. And I think the practical stuff is great, but a lot of the practical stuff to me was like, you know, this stuff actually works, that the spiritual realm actually exists. And then right. that put me able to be in touch with the other spiritual, the Zen stuff and everything that I did, you know? So I love I think that, that, that you're like you're interested in the practical side of things, but the biggest realization for you is that the fact that any of this works at all has huge implications for one's cosmology and religious beliefs and philosophy and everything else and all of that is so much bigger than just doing any individual operation or like ritual that um sometimes people might miss the bigger picture. Yeah, oh, here's the thing is that I look at people and they compartmentalize and they'd be like, well, I'm an astrologer by night, but the rest of the day, I'm just a regular middle class, you know, atheistic materialist. And I'm like, mm. that I don't understand. Picatrix blew my life apart. You know what I mean? That mm. that quest that I was on, that Picatrix was part of an astrological magic, it changed me irrevocably and it changed all the way I look at reality. My worldview now is a traditional worldview. I see the entire cosmos as being full of spirit. In fact, the spiritual is primary, you know? Mm. And that's a 180 degrees from where I started out as a, as a as an atheistic materialist. So I think that that's what really is exciting about whatever the thing about it is astrological magic isn't for everybody. You know, if it resonates with you, go for it. But any type of these traditional esoteric sciences has incredible potential for revolutionary impact on your thinking, on your worldview, and on, on your entire life. And I think that's what's most exciting about um, working with Picatrix. Um, if it resonates for you, that's the thing. If this is, there are people that come across this and like, I have to, I just, they're just consumed by it, you know? And I certainly mm. was. But that's a very small number of people, you know? And other people, oh, interesting, they put it on the shelf, they buy it or whatever, or they're not even interested in astrology or whatever. But um, this is the deep, what's happening is the all the froth, you know, all the, the new age stuff and all the people that are into sun signs and people that, oh, they know what moon sign is now. This is what allows us to do it. I mean, people like you and I are able to be supported, right, by this incredible interest that's going on, and we can do this deeper stuff. You know, the the um, the the work that you're doing is incredible, and it's just been like it's been exciting for me to be part of it. It's like I say, so it's a real honor for me to have to to have. I, I lit the match. That's all I can say. All sure. I did was light the match, and now we're getting the bonfire. So right. Uh, yeah, well, it's definitely burning brightly and and appears to be getting bigger and headed in very positive directions in the future. So thanks for doing that, and thanks for your contributions to the field. Um, so where can people find out more information about like your work 
and uh, your editions of the Picatrix and the, the course and everything that you mentioned? Yeah, just go to my website, which is uh, renaissanceastrology.com. And um, I've been doing a lot of recoding. You know, it's a 20-year-old website, if you can believe it. And I've been doing all this recoding, so it's mobile responsive now. Um, nice. And um, it's so you can see books, courses. Um, now, readings, I've had to, um, uh, I've got a commitment. Um, I'm going to be, I have an oral argument in the Iowa Supreme Court in February, early part of February. So I have to take the first two weeks off from readings. Um, but I'll be back to doing readings after that. And then also talismans. So we have an incredible selection of talismans. If you're seriously interested in buying one, go ahead and email me with your birth date and I can check it out for you to see if it's what's compatible for you. And um, just a lot of exciting. I mean, I've the website has uh, 700 pages. So yeah, it's a it's huge, a huge, huge resource. resource. Yeah. Uh, and it's been for a while like the one of the primary resources for traditional astrology on the internet since the early 2000s before there were like blogs or YouTube channels or anything on traditional astrology. So that's been in and of itself just a huge contribution uh, to the community over the past couple of decades. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, it's the book stuff too is I think really key. I mean, getting Picatrix translated and getting it out there. I mean, there's it's it still sells a good number of copies. So it's mm -hmm. like that's a lot of people are you know have an opportunity to to delve into it. So I think it's exciting, and um, you know again I want to thank you for for having me on today, and um, I had a great time. It's like I said, I don't get a chance to talk to people with your level of knowledge and l enthusiasm about the stuff. Usually it's people asking me about you know like the, the most basic stuff. You know, right. and so it's really a privilege to to be able to interact. And um, I have an afflicted ninth house, so that's partly why I don't do. Con I have a, just a tough time traveling, and so okay. you know. But I but I swore. Cliff said to me, "You got to go to UAC." I said, "All right, if I if I if I can go, I'm going to be at UAC next time." So I, I make that as a commitment that I'm going to do my best to be there. And um, it's just been exciting over the past year, kind of coming out again and kind of you know being on the Cliffs thing and doing this and everything and really kind of. Being in open communication with people, it's been I've got such great feedback, so it's it's been wonderful. I'm going to do more of it. Good. Well, there's a big conference coming up next year here in Denver, which is the ESAR conference in September. So maybe we can talk you into coming out for that or something to oh, make, make an arm. appearance, right? <laughs> you know, right, I don't we'll... even drive anymore. Okay. I, I like I um I probably don't even get in a car more than once every I mean once a week, you know. And mm. um, my eyes are getting to the point where I just don't feel comfortable driving. So, okay. um, you know, but I've been Ubering around and stuff like that. And, you know, but uh, yeah, I, you know, it's I, the more I do it, I'm more like, you know what, this is really great. And um, there's no reason to be sort of a hermit anymore with the stuff. So, all right. Well, maybe listeners could write in if they want to encourage, <laughs> encourage you perhaps to make an appearance at the ESAR conference next year and we'll see what happens. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, thanks a lot for joining me today. Um, people should check out your website, which is renaissanceastrology.com. And otherwise, that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks to the patrons who supported the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through a page on patreon.com, including patrons Christine Stone, Nate Craddock, Tanner Robinson, and Marin Altman. Also thanks to the Astrogold Astrology app, available at astrogold.io, the Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs at honeycomb.co, and also the International Society for Astrological Research, which is hosting a conference in Denver, Colorado, September 10th through the 14th, 2020. More information about that at esar2020.org. 
and the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening in Seattle, Washington, May 21st through the 25th, 2020. More information about that at norwac.net. To sign up to become a patron and get early access to new episodes and other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.